Hey, it's Kanzano. I appreciate you making this podcast part of your day. Make sure you subscribe if you want more and leave us some feedback. Away we go. Initialize sequence. Welcome to The Baldcast, a production of John Kanzano's Baldface Truth. <laughs> BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the Bald Face Truth. Normally I come on this radio show and I will uh, start the show by telling you what an escape and what a diversion or, uh, or you know, how this... How sports is supposed to be different than your regular life, right? Like, I don't out and out tell you that, but it is. It's supposed to be a diversion. Like, when Oregon State is playing a football game, you're a Beaver fan, you're watching that, maybe you have some of your disposable income invested in tickets, or maybe you're just watching the game in your living room. Uh, you know, or if you're an Oregon fan, you'll be watching Oregon-UCLA this weekend. I don't know if you'll be at Autzen Stadium or you'll be at home, but... There will be an element of that that doesn't feel like you out mowing your lawn or doing work like you did all week. So normally what I'm peddling here is the escape that we all have that is sports. But today as I went to write about the Trailblazers and the NBA season, I couldn't bring it in myself to lie to you. Like really, I can't. Like, I, there's no way that I want to mislead you, ever. Not in the show, not in print, not anywhere. And so as I sat there and I thought, you know, it's the opening day of a season. Blazers playing at the Sacramento Kings on the road tonight. Zero and zero record. You know, 82 games ahead. The thing I kept thinking about was the stuff that we have been talking in and around about for several months on this show is that this is a franchise that is troubled. It's a franchise that has been in denial and operated in denial for some time. And, and look, it's got a proud history. It's got a great fan base. I think the building, the uh, Moda Center, the, the building formerly known as the Rose Garden Arena, it needs some improvements, but the bones of that building I think are good. And uh, I'm left thinking, you know, there's a lot about the Blazers' future that I would buy and I would like, but the team is clearly stuck in the wasteland that is the middle of the NBA. They are not talented enough to contend for a championship. They're not terrible enough to have one of the top picks. They're firmly in the middle. Most of that is rooted in the fact that Damian Lillard, their aging star player, is good enough to carry them, uh, in a, even in a dismal season, to 30 to 40 wins, right? 35, 38 wins. Uh, they're stuck. They're stuck in the middle. And, you know, they feel like a team that is destined for the league's play-in tournament. That's where we stand on opening night. Now, look, it may be that the Blazers show up in surprise. Maybe they're better than advertised. Maybe Chauncey Billups can really coach. Maybe I'll end up looking stupid for saying this. But I'm looking at sort of the last five or eight years of the Blazers organization. A lot has gone on. Owner Paul Allen passed away. General manager Neil O'Shea was forced out. There was a coaching change. Terry Stotts left. Chauncey Billups came in. We saw, you know, at the trade deadline last year, uh, C.J. McCollum was traded. The Blazers sort of turned a corner, kind of, committed to rebuilding, but not really because they kept Damian Lillard. Like, they're playing the hokey pokey a little bit. One foot in, one foot out. We're rebuilding. No, we're not. I mean, it, it, in, in the end, it's, it's a franchise that is left uh, stuck. And, and I think part of it is 
that there's a front office and a real business push with the Trailblazers to renew season tickets, to renew sponsorships, to keep the business running. And, you, and it's difficult to keep the business running if you give up and you go all in with a rebuild. And I think the Blazers have been fearful for a number of reasons to commit to a complete rebuild, right? So I think they've leaned away from a rebuild, even though the roster was broken and we could all see it in recent years. Uh, they were, there was an unwillingness to acknowledge what we all could plainly see, that you know this is a franchise that's holding a bad hand, and it's left playing out a bad hand. But still, every NBA season starts with hope, right? And so, you know, the hope that I'm looking for today is that the Blazers organization gets real with what it is and where it is. Um, You know, I think that this is a franchise that within a couple of years could be back, could be proud, could be contending. But that doesn't happen if you just continue to commit to mediocrity and you cling to Damian Lillard and uh, a roster around him that's not very good and you just go, hey, you know, maybe we'll get lucky and figure this out. That's not a plan. That's just that's just some hope, uh, you know, it, that is buried in uh, a Blazers season. But, you know, I saw, I, I, uh, I saw a quote today that, you know, it said, you know, when things are dark around you, you may feel like you're buried, but maybe you've just been planted. Like, I saw that, that it's a very hopeful quote. And I thought about the Blazers organization. Like, you know, it's not like the brightest. It's not like the brightest and the best, right? Like we're not looking at this team as a contender, but they're going to start playing games tonight. And you know, I even think fans in Indiana and San Antonio and Utah and Houston and Oklahoma City, who are all projected to be the worst teams in the NBA, have got a little hope in their hearts because there are some really good young players that will be in the next draft. And there's going to be a lot of talk about tanking. Well, I wrote it today at JohnConzano.com, and I have some Blazer fans mad at me. I wrote that the Blazers should get in on this Victor Wimbanyama uh, sweepstakes, uh, and you know this 18-year-old kid that everybody's buzzing about—seven foot four, seven foot five, eight foot wingspan, walking mismatch. You know, a little bit Rudy Gobert, a little bit Kevin Durant. You know, the the buzz around this kid is just—it it makes you wonder if the Blazers might find themselves in position right now, or maybe pretty early in the season if things aren't going well to start considering uh, what would be a total rebuild of the roster, which would include the trade of Damian Lillard before the February trade deadline, which would include the organization just going, look, um, we're not going to throw games, but we're going to put a roster, and we're going to put players out there on the court that we know won't win very many games, and try to get yourself in position to either have the top pick in the draft and take Wembenyama or to have the number two pick and you go after a player uh, of course, uh, that yeah, everybody's talking about Scoot Henderson, who is a guard that is drawing some comparisons to Derrick Rose or John Morant and, you know, just uh, a guy that is out there to demoralize the spirit of the opposition. Now, Scoot may end up being the better player. And if you're a Blazer fan, you may be allergic to taking a big man. But I think it's going to be really hard for whoever's holding pick number one in the next draft to not take Victor Wembanyama because I think he is going to be a scary mismatch and a, a player that you know an NBA team is going to salivate over. I would not take the Blazers' future with this roster over a future that includes one of the top two picks in the NBA draft coming up. 503-417-7575. Is it wrong to start thinking about tanking before the season has even officially started? Let's have that conversation about the Blazers. 
What's going right with the Blazers? They got some good young players. Got Damian Lillard. He's coming off the abdominal surgery. Maybe he's better. What's going wrong? The roster's not right. Ownership's a mess. Jody Allen should sell the team to Phil Knight. He would take care of it. He'd love it. He'd nurture it. I would change my tune if you had an owner like Phil Knight because I I would believe that Phil Knight would come in and make the necessary moves because anybody who's been around good businesses know that, you know, good businesses, successful businesses don't always get it right. In fact, they get lots of little things wrong. Sometimes they get big things wrong. Look at Coca-Cola. Went from, you know, New Coke to Classic Coke to, oh, that was a big mistake. We need to go back to the original formula. Like sometimes great brands and great businesses make mistakes, but great ones often will course correct. They'll pivot. You know, the Patriots, I bring them up all the time under Bill Belichick with Tom Brady at quarterback. They made a lot of mistakes. They took players they shouldn't have taken. They took risks they shouldn't have taken. They drafted players who never panned out. What they didn't do was stay with that to a fault and let that drag down an era or a decade of their franchise. They just went, nope, this isn't working. Wash our hands. Let's move on. Antonio Brown, not part of our plans. This isn't working. Uh Uh-oh, wash our hands. We're moving in a different direction. Like you've seen great organizations, great businesses do this. The problem that I see with the Blazers is that they've made a bunch of mistakes and they cling to the mistakes, maybe out of fear of being wrong, maybe out of fear of, hey, you know, if we make another move, we're going to make a we're going to compound this mistake. But what I don't see is a franchise that is actively making moves that make the roster better, that give the organization uh, a better opportunity to win. And so I am left going, gosh, this is a roster that if we're going to be real, it's got Damian Lillard, it's got Anthony Simons, you got a Yusuf Nurkic there. Like, you know, yeah, could they win 38 to 42 games? Yeah, they could. But uh, they're closer to the bottom, guys, than they are the top. 503-417-7575 is the number. I wrote it today at johnconzano.com. The Blazers should enter the Wembenyama sweepstakes. I also wrote a little bit about the Pac-12, but uh, I get a lot of Blazer fans in the comments section there. Some of the Blazer fans are going, yes, hallelujah. Amen. You're preaching to the choir. That Yes, this is a franchise that needs to get real with where it is. Others are going, hey, they haven't even played a game yet. What's with the hot take? You tell me where you stand on that front at 417-7575 in the 503 area code. We've got a great show today. We're going to be visiting with Ryan Abraham, usctrojans.com, uscfootball.com. He is going to talk to us about USC's mindset coming out of last week's loss. We'll look a little bit at the Pac-12 And Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State football coach, will be with us as well uh, in the 5 o'clock hour to talk about his game coming up against Colorado. But in the meantime, I want your phone calls. Let's talk about it. Is it too soon to talk about and think about tanking if you're a Blazer fan? Should this organization, you know, be committed to, like, hey, let's see what happens in the first 25 games before you make that call? Or is it right to go, look, it's not happening as soon as you can trade Damian Lillard, as soon as you can get draft picks, future draft picks, young players in exchange for a star, the better. It's just not happening here. You tell me where you stand on that front. Steven, I want to know what you think as well. Steven, am I out of line here? 
like the you know when I look at Victor Wembanyama, I'm looking at a seven foot five inch guy that I'm going, hey, that's more interesting to me than seeing this team try to compete right now. Yeah, if you're gonna tank, this is the year to do it. Like that's how good Victor Wembanyama is, and even Scoot Henderson is. You know, not to that extent, but you know, people are saying that Wembanyama is a better prospect than LeBron James was, who is maybe the most hyped guy we've seen. You know, I don't know ever since Patrick Ewing when he came out back in the '80s. So. You know, if you're going to tank, this might be the year. I'm with you with the Blazers. I think best-case scenario, they are probably the 8th seed in the Western Conference. Uh, I think they're more realistically like the 10th seed. The, the roster is just uninspiring to me right now, and you're right. It's just like they're kicking the can down the road because they know that they're going to get a certain amount of wins with Damian Lillard. That's how good he is. He's had such a high floor when he is healthy that this team's going to win 35 games. But what is the real goal? Is the real goal to try to win a championship or is the real goal just to make the playoffs and try to get some home playoff games? That's the question that needs to be asked, and I think you touched on it with Jody Allen, Burt Cold, and Charge. What are their realistic expectations? What do they want? I think they're more like we want to get a home playoff game, get that revenue in, rather than actually compete for a championship. I think from a business standpoint, we saw it at the, the last February at the trade deadline. We saw the Blazers give up on C.J. McCollum, and, and it looked like they were pivoting towards just a total rebuild. There was questions about would Lillard be next, whatnot, but he was hurt. So I kind of wondered if maybe the, you know, the motivation of the Blazers organization was, hey, let's sell some season tickets. Let's sell some sponsorships to sponsors. Let's see how the first 25 or 30 games of the season go, and then we'll decide whether or not we're going all in on a tank job. But I'm a, I'm a little fearful because I feel like this is going to be the year. Like 21 wins, 22 wins, 23 wins, 24 wins probably gets you in the running for the top two picks in this draft. I've looked at several seasons past. But I think if you're a Blazer fan, you got to wonder, do they have a shot? Do they have a chance here? Or would you rather see them do a total rebuild, rip the Band-Aid off, and start over? Let's go to the phone lines. Paul is in Vancouver. Paul, help us out. Oh, hey, thank you very much. Uh, by the way, Ryan Abraham, I love his podcast. I think it's Trojan tur Turnstile or whatever, but, hey, good guess. Um, I wanted to get into this Blazers, and I talked about Phil Knight being the owner forever. Anybody that disagrees me, see University of Oregon, what he did there. And let's get us a let's get a him as an owner because the thing is the Blazers are a big disadvantage or a smaller market, and if Phil Knight were the owner, I think we would get our second championship. But that's just my opinion. Yeah, I, I am I'm, I totally support that. I think he's got vision. He's built something. He's he would bring new energy, new vision uh, to the organization. But is it too early to tank? Is it too early to say this is a team that should be playing for the draft lottery? When we know if the Blazers go out and they work hard, I'll just play devil's advocate. If they work hard, if they're focused, if Lillard is healthy and returns to the form that he had prior to the injury, like, like he could put the Blazers on his back. They could win 35 games with with him and me and Steven and you know Gator playing alongside him. Like you know that's that's the reality. So I think if they're really going to tank, what we're really saying is they've got to move Damian Lillard you know, before the trade deadline probably to to maximize that opportunity. Do fans support that? Are fans okay with that? Or would that be a painful departure to see him go somewhere else and win, uh, knowing that, hey, the consolation is maybe you're going to get one of the top two picks? Yeah. Is it 
Is it too soon? The question I would ask is, think about it this way. If you have to trade Damian Lillard, are you closer to a championship with Damian Lillard as your best player or Victor Wimbanyama? And I know it's it's not a for sure that you would get that guy, but at the same time, that's what you're shooting for. You're shooting for a guy like that. And I yeah. think the realistic answer is if Victor Wimbanyama, if you have him on your team, you're closer to a championship than you are with Damian Lillard as your best player. And that's just yeah. what it is. Yeah, we're watching you know, LeBron James age out of the league, right? He's going to retire. He'll age out of the league. Damian Lillard's not going to be far behind him. He's in that next wave. And so, you know, I, I think right now, even with Lillard, the Blazers are closer to the number one pick than they are the number one seed. Like, they're just they're closer to the bottom than they are to the top right now. Colby is in Roseburg listening on 1490 AM. Colby, what's up, man? How you doing, John? Doing well. Well, you know, first of all, I do agree. You know, if, if the season starts off poorly, just go ahead and take it. But first things first, the problem is Jody Allen. Got to get rid of her somehow, some way. And I'm glad to hear you finally bring up Phil Knight again because I hadn't heard any news on him for a while. Got to sell to him. Got to convince this lady. It's what has to be done. I firmly believe if Paul Allen had, was still alive but was on his deathbed or knew he was on borrowed time and Phil Knight had come to him, Paul Allen knowing what's good for the Blazers in Portland, would have sold the team to Phil Knight. And for some reason, Jody Allen just doesn't love the team like he did and will never love them. I agree with that. I, I just think she doesn't get it. I think you're at your dead solid perfect on what it would mean. As, you know, look, Phil Knight, he, he has, he's a visionary. He has built Nike into what might be the greatest success, global success story in sports as a business. He understands brand. He understands marketing. I don't think he would have a problem uh, finding creative ways to get free agents to Portland. I think it would be the Midas touch on the Blazers. I think it would be a 180-degree course correction from what we've watched in this franchise. Does it solve all the problems? No. But, you know, I've been told if he wants the team and it's for sale, he's going to get the team. Uh, the problem is that Jody Allen's got the team in a headlock right now. She's the trustee. She needs to let go of it. Let it free. Save for that, I think if you're a Blazer fan, you know, the play-in tournament doesn't do it for me. So if you're a Blazer fan, I, I do think starting all the way over, even before a game has played, I, I believe that starting all the way over is the better path for this organization. They could prove me wrong and go be the sixth seed and – upset somebody in the first round of the NBA playoffs and we would all uh, celebrate, but wouldn't that just be the same fool's gold we got several years ago? Like, this is a franchise, this is a roster that has a definite ceiling on it, and that ceiling falls well short of the NBA Finals. Leave it here. I got some thoughts on the Pac-12. Chip Kelly and the Bruins coming to Autzen Stadium. Will the weather be a factor? What are the other factors on game day? Leave it here. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Coming up 4 o'clock, Ryan Abraham covers USC football. USC all upset over the uh, calls in the Utah game last weekend. Uh, but I think if USC had ended up walking off winners, I think the Utah fans would have been the ones crying foul. Uh, John Wilner and I uh, do a podcast called the Konzano and Wilner Podcast. We disagree on Pac-12 officiating. Um, and look, when you know, I, I, I'm opinionated. Okay, I get it. 
I've got my opinions. This isn't life or death to me, though. If the Pac-12 doesn't want to get better at officiating, fine. Just keep doing what you're doing. You know, keep pointing at other conferences and saying, hey, there's bad calls everywhere. Um, maybe some people will believe that. Like, yeah, I, I do believe that there are bad calls everywhere. But I think the truth is, like, shouldn't the conference be interested in getting the officiating, like, absolutely the best it can possibly be? Like, I have to think, like, if you're really talking about the product on the field, part of the product is that third team that shows up every game, every Friday or Saturday, whenever the Pac-12 is playing. There's three teams on the field. There are two football teams, and there's one officiating team. That officiating team needs to be better. Um, I want to talk, though, about this weekend's games. UCLA going to Watson Stadium on Saturday. Uh, should be a really interesting game. Uh, a lot of people focused on what is going to happen. Um, I've had some people who are from out of the area ask me about game day. They are expecting some showers on game day. Should be about 60 degrees, overcast, with rain showers at times. Um, I'm anticipating when this game kicks off at about 1230, it'll be about 57 degrees with light winds and... Some rain, despite what Don Essig, the voice of Odson Stadium, tells us. Uh, will rain be a factor in this game? I keep thinking about Dorian Thompson-Robinson, Bo Nix. Uh, I know that we generally try to say the home team has a bigger advantage because they've been playing in this stuff, they understand it, but I'm not sure Bo Nix has had a bunch of, you know, had a bunch of experience with playing in... Uh, weather that is like this. So, guys, uh, as you look at this, Stephen, how big a factor is the rain, the potential that there would be rain on Saturday? Uh, how big is that factor? And uh, it actually looks like it's going to be cooler than the 58 degrees that I predicted. looks like more like 50 degrees mm. uh, with winds at about 5 miles an hour, 80% chance of rain, expecting about a quarter inch of rain in Eugene on Saturday. At least that's the forecast. So a little cooler, a little wetter. Uh, is that an advantage or a disadvantage to anybody? I don't think it's really an advantage or disadvantage to anybody because I think you're right. Bo Nix, I don't know how much experience he has in cold weather, uh, in rainy weather like that as well. Uh, obviously, the L.A. guys, Dorian Thompson Robinson, all those guys probably don't have a lot of experience as well. But you know the way that UCLA plays and the way that Oregon plays, they like to be physical in the front, you know, on on the offensive and defensive line. So I don't think that the rain and the cold is really going to affect that too much. So I really don't think it's going to matter too much uh, if it's raining or not. I also wonder about the other factors in the game. I watched uh, with great curiosity a couple of weeks as Utah and, and UCLA were playing. I think one of the biggest factors that nobody's talking about is the idea that UCLA hasn't really played a road game this season. Um, when you look at their schedule, of course they had the cupcake non-conference schedule that's not totally their fault because Michigan backed out on them. But the reality is UCLA opened this season with three really soft games against Bowling Green and Alabama State and South Alabama. They did not have to leave the Rose Bowl. Uh, they also played the Friday night game against Washington at the Rose Bowl. They played the Utah game at the Rose Bowl. Their only road game of the season came on September 24th. Uh, when they went to Colorado, which was, let's face it, the easiest game in the Pac-12 conference. It's the easiest road game that you could find. So I wonder about UCLA and the psyche of the UCLA players going into Autzen Stadium. 
I've heard people say, oh, they're not going to be affected by that. You know, these are college football players. And I, I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering, let's combine the weather. Okay, it's uncharacteristic weather. And I've seen players, seen athletes go into cold weather situations, wet weather situations, causes a distraction. But they're also doing this for the first time, really, as a road team in the conference. Bigger factor, weather or being on the road, Stephen? On the road. I think that's a way bigger factor because you just can't, you can't replicate the sound and the atmosphere that you're going to experience when you're down at Austin Stadium when you're practicing. You just can't do that. Where I do think a lot of these guys, you know, when they're on the field and it's raining and it's weather-wise, it kind of affects everybody. Where when UCLA is coming on the road to Austin, it's going to affect them much more than it's going to affect Oregon. So I think I think being on the road is going to be a big factor. And we talked about this when Washington went up to play UCLA. Washington hadn't played on the road. And that was the one thing we all thought was, well, that's, we, we need to see it from Washington. We need to see it from UCLA because they haven't had that road test yet. But I do think it is going to be a factor because you know, Oregon always plays really well at Austin Stadium, and their record proves it. I, uh, I looked last week at home favorites in the Pac-12 conference. The home favorites in the Pac-12 uh, prior to this last weekend uh, came in with a 27-1 and record. And uh, if you look across the conference last weekend, uh, you know, you had Utah as a home favorite, won the game. Uh, who else did you have this last weekend? I'm just going off the top of my head. Oregon uh, State. Oregon State at home. They were a home favorite. They won the game. So there's two more. I'm actually going to jump here to the schedule for the Pac-12. But I think it held up uh, in every case last weekend. And I think, you know, you, the trend is your friend when you're looking at games. Oregon is a home favorite. So uh, here are the other. Uh, Washington was a home favorite. They won the game. So there's three. So the three home favorites last week won. Cal- uh, Colorado was a home underdog and won the game outright. So the the, uh, the home favorites in the Pac-12 are now 30-1 and one this season uh, in games. Oregon's a home favorite. Oregon's winning this game. Like, uh, Autzen Stadium the, might be the best home field advantage in the conference. I actually think it's between Autzen Stadium and Research Stadium right now as the greatest home field advantage, just the way the teams play it, seem to play at home. Now, and here's the thing. I don't want to go into, like, our picks in this next segment, Stephen, yeah. but I want to go into where are we leaning with our picks because we're going to give our official picks tomorrow. Right. So I want you to kind of maybe think about where you're leaning on this Oregon game. I'll think about it. We'll share after the break uh, what we think is going to happen. Where are we leaning with our pick for the game? But right now I'm leaning towards home favorites. Hard. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Every Thursday, we give our official picks on the Pac-12 games of the week, college football games. But on Wednesdays, I like to say, where am I leaning? Or I like to ask, which way am I leaning? Uh, Chip Kelly was speaking uh, about the the offense of Oregon. He talked about Bo Nix in particular. Listen to this. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of a lot of similarities to a lot of teams. That play. I think everybody kind of copycats each other throughout college football. But they're, they're sound. They run the ball really well. Their quarterback is is a true threat in the running game. Um, they try to get him. He's a big physical kid that can get the ball in the perimeter. Um, but they also distribute the ball in the passing game really well. So um, I think it's a balanced attack. And, and you got to make sure you got to account for all 11. You know, sometimes when you have a quarterback that's not a runner, you don't have to account for him in the in the run in the run game. But you know, with with uh, with this quarterback, you do. So. 
There it is. Dan Lanning, meanwhile, giving his final thoughts on UCLA. Hope you guys are as excited as I am about this environment. We got our two tickets we're giving away here for signs. I'm expecting some people in this group to be holding their signs up. Should be a lot of fun. We had our, our third down red area day. Um, practice inside today because of smoke. Um, but it was good. It allowed us to get a little bit better crowd noise for some of our defensive stuff. It's hard to, when our, our stadium is as crazy as it can be, right, it's hard to communicate on that side of the ball when you're out there. So creating that environment right now for our players is really, really important. But plenty to clean up. Uh, excited about the direction we're headed. Excited to play a good team. Yeah, you think about, you know, we had this conversation yesterday with Bruce Barnum, the Portland State coach, and he was watching film of USC and Utah and USC and Oregon State, and he happened to be tuning in, and I asked him about motion and why USC wasn't running very much motion. They weren't running hardly any motion against Oregon State, and they did a bunch against Utah, um, and he pointed to the crowd noise at Research Stadium being a problem. As the game went on in, in Salt Lake City, uh, USC, you know, got got away from that motion game. And it makes sense to me that, you know, you can't communicate. You're going on first sound. You're waiting for the center to snap the ball. It creates all kinds of problems. But we don't often think about the defensive players who are on the field trying to communicate while the Autzen Stadium crowd is making life uh, difficult for the opposing offense. So keep that in mind uh, as you look at Saturday's games. Let's start with that game, UCLA. Going to Oregon on Saturday. This game is uh, much anticipated, highly anticipated game, of course. If you're a Duck fan, uh, these tickets are hard to come by, and a lot of people are excited to see these teams play. But this game will uh, kick off on 12.30 p.m. on Fox. Uh, the Ducks are now a six-point favorite. This game has been around six, six and a half all week long. I'm not giving my official pick here, but Stephen... I'm leaning Oregon, and I'm leaning Oregon to cover. The home favorites, the trend is your friend. 75% of the Pac-12 home favorites have, uh, have uh, covered the spread, and uh, 30 of the 31 home favorites have won the game outright this season. I like Oregon to win the game, and I think Oregon's going to cover the six points. I think they win by more than a touchdown. That's where I'm leaning. I reserve the right to change my pick on tomorrow's show. Yeah, I mean, could it just be that easy that you just said 30 of the 31 home favorites, they're winning the game? Like, that number says, yeah, Oregon's going to win the game. And I agree with you. I think Oregon's going to win the game. I really have a lot of confidence right now in Chip Kelly in that week off. I think right now I'm leaning at UCLA. I'm going to take the points, hopefully get it to six and a half. I like Oregon, and I've been high on Oregon all season long, but this is another real test, right? They're playing an undefeated team uh, game day. Everyone's going to be watching. This is a real test for Oregon in that offense. Are they legit a top the top offense in the Pac-12? Is the UCLA defense one of the best defenses in the Pac-12? I, you know, It's going to be an exciting game. I'm leaning UCLA to cover, but I do like Oregon to win the game. I think Oregon's offense is a touch better than UCLA's, even with Dorian Thompson-Robinson looking comfortable. And I think Oregon's defense is a touch better than UCLA's. I think these are the two most balanced teams. Like if you say, you know, who in this conference has a great offense? Well, we can talk about Arizona. We can talk about Washington. We can talk about Oregon, UCLA. We can talk about Utah, you know, USC certainly. Like, you know, there's about six offenses in the conference that really scare you. Uh, and then you talk about who's the best defense. And you talk about Oregon State. I think they have maybe the best defense. Then you talk about Oregon. You talk about UCLA. Maybe you're talking a little bit about Utah, not a whole bunch, but a little bit kind of, you know, after that group. Uh, Washington State might be in that conversation too. But I think these are the two most balanced teams in the conference that can play both sides of the ball. Uh, I like Oregon at home. 
And I, I think they're just a touch better than UCLA on both sides of the ball. Yeah, it just, you know, just using your eyeballs to watching the game, like these are the top two teams in the conference. Like you could say USC maybe is slightly better than both, or maybe Utah is as well, but just watching all the games in the Pac-12 this year, these are the top two teams in the conference. Like you said, they're balanced offensively and defensively. This should be a really fun game, and for that reason, like that's why I'm leaning it's going to be a close finish. As we've seen at Austin Stadium before, there's been close finishes, but Oregon usually pulls them out. Do you think if Oregon had, you know, I, let's talk first impressions. They lose 49-3 to in that opening week. Mm-hmm. Let's just say they lose more respectably. Let's say they lose by 20 points, yeah. okay? It's not a complete boat racing. What's the spread on this game if they had played Georgia just a little better? I think it's up to seven. I really do. I think it's it's a little bit higher because I think Oregon would probably be sixth or seventh in the nation. Remember when they lose to Georgia, they fell all the way out of the rankings. And I remember saying, I tweeted out, like it seems like a, lot, a long fall to lose to the number one team in the nation with a brand new coach, brand new quarterback. I think it would be a little bit higher than that. And, and you know, if it was that high, I would definitely like UCLA uh, post the points. But I think Oregon still, you know, they're still not getting the respect that I think they deserve. Uh, being the one-loss team. They got a shot to get the CFP if they win this game. We disagree on this one so far, but tomorrow the official picks. But I'm leaning Oregon, and I'm leaning Oregon by more than six. Uh, The second game, 1 o'clock on the Pac-12 Networks. Arizona State's going to Stanford. Stanford won last week at Notre Dame. Arizona State has showed some life. They beat Washington, but they've also fired their coach. They've been inconsistent. Arizona State... At Stanford, Arizona State's getting three points in this game. I'm leaning towards Arizona State, even though Stanford showed signs of life or proof of life last week. I think Arizona State can score, and I think they will be disruptive for Tanner McKee. They were disruptive with Caleb Williams, and McKee is not as mobile, and his offensive line not as good. So I think Arizona State is going to give Stanford some problems. I, I like Arizona State, and I'll take the three points while they're giving it. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's Arizona State for me. Um, you know, Stanford, they've shown some life the last two games, right, against the Oregon State and then at Notre Dame. They played well. They beat Notre Dame 16-14, uh, but you know, it was the offense that didn't really get it going, right? And I think they're going to have to score some points against Arizona State, who does have a solid offensive game. Like, we've seen that this season when they beat Washington. They score a lot of points, so... I think Stanford's going to have a little bit of a struggle to score enough. So, yeah, give me Arizona State uh, to win outright. All right, here is uh, a home favorite scenario, 5 o'clock Pac-12 Networks. Oregon State at Research Stadium, 24-point favorites over Colorado. Colorado beat Cal last week, played a little defensive, uh, uh, you know, hide-and-seek. They played a different scheme. Nobody would seen it. Uh, surprised Cal, frustrated them a little bit. Oregon State's seen it now. A little bit. At least they have some tape on Colorado. Um, the spread is 24 on this one. It's a lot of points for an offense that doesn't score a lot of points. I'm still, though, leaning right now that Oregon State covers the 24 against Colorado because I don't know if Colorado is going to get to 10. Yeah, uh, I'm going to disagree with you on this one. I, I think what you just said, Oregon State has a hard time scoring the football uh, to give up 24 points, that's a lot of points. I'm going to take the 24, Colorado. I think Oregon State wins, uh, you know, pretty easily. Uh, but I did like what I saw out of you know Sanford, Mike Sanford, the coach there. He was really getting the guys hyped. That atmosphere was great up in Colorado. You, you would hope that they continue that coming down to Corvallis, where you know I imagine the crowd's going to be great for the Beavs. But at the same time, it is Colorado, so maybe it won't be as impressive as it has been. So, uh, you know, for that reason, and this is the offensive struggles, Branson probably going to be the quarterback again. Give me Colorado, I think, plus the points. 
finally uh, short schedule in the in the conference this week, so there's only one more game. Seven thirty on ESPN. You've got Washington going to Cal. Uh, the spread on this uh, Washington currently a seven and a half point favorite on the road at Cal. I uh, I just don't believe in Cal and Cal's offense right now, and I think Washington can score. I think Washington will score. I'll take Washington, and I will lay the seven and a half points because I think they'll win going away. Uh, I think there's some serious questions right now for Justin Wilcox and Cal. I, you know, he'll he'll figure it out, but really disappointing showing last week at Colorado for them. Man, I seven and a half points at home, Pac-12 after dark. It seems like a spot where I want to take Cal, but I'm with you. Like I, I can't bet on Cal and think that it's a good bet. So I think Washington. You know, you're right. The offense hasn't faltered still. The defense has shown a little bit of vulnerability, but that offense has still been cooking. I, I think I would lay the points to Washington. Tomorrow we give our final picks, but I'm leaning Oregon. I'm leaning Arizona State. I'm leaning Oregon State, and I'm leaning Washington. Stephen and I disagree a little bit on UCLA, Oregon. We disagree on Arizona State and uh, Stanford or a little Colorado, Oregon State, rather. Uh, we'll give our official picks on tomorrow's show. Uh, the Big Splash is coming up, plus uh, top of the hour We'll talk to uh, a USC reporter who is going to fill us in on where Lincoln Riley and the Trojans will pivot uh, when they get back onto the field. Plus, uh, we'll talk to Jonathan Smith, the Oregon State coach, coming up in the 5 o'clock hour. Tomorrow at 4.15, Dan Lanning, Oregon coach, will be joining us. We'll talk all about his game against UCLA. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You see that Kyle Schwarber home run? Hit a 488-foot home run for the Phillies in Game 1 of the NLCS. It was a bomb. It should count for more than one when you hit a ball that far. Um, it was uh, it was a uh, monster shot. Phillies take Game 1 against the Padres. Did you, guys, did you see that, Steven? Did you see that home run? I did, yeah. That was uh, one of the farthest balls I've ever seen hit. That was right. crazy. John Morosi friend of this show, uh, who has been on the show many times, is the Fox broadcaster. He asked Schwarber, well, I'll let you hear the interview in the dugout. We've had a night to think about it. So, what was it like to hit the ball that essentially broke StatCast? Uh, you know, I, I'm still just a big believer in, you know, a home run's a home run. First row, second row, third row, second deck, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, really cool, cool, uh, Cool thing with that far, and we were able to win the game. You know, I think that's the biggest thing. Um, you know, I I told everyone, heck, I, I I keep rolling over the second base if we keep winning baseball games. So, uh, you know, I, at the end of the day, it's getting win. So that's the thing that matters. Blake Snell today. There it is. The end of the game. It's a stark contrast from what we saw in the American League Division Series with the. You know, the Cleveland and New York theatrics and Rock the Baby and all that stuff. Do you think that that was good for the game, what was happening in that Yankees-Guardian series? That, you know, it was the trots and Rock and the Baby and the taunting that was going back and forth. And I'm torn on it because I think, you know, the purist in me says there's no place for that in the game. Uh, but I also know that baseball's in a uh, crisis where it needs young viewers and I frankly think some of that brings young viewers to the game. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm a little torn because it, it was a little over the top. Like, I don't know, it just, 
doing he was rocking the baby around the entire all the bases right when Josh Naylor uh, hit the home run he was looking right at Garrett Cole and did it the whole time so I I don't know it seemed a little over the top for me um, but I do think it is good for the game it got people talking about it. Um, and it, I think it really brought a rivalry, hopefully, to like Cleveland and New York, maybe going into the next season. So um, I, I don't, so I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, know because that, all right. So wait a minute, let me, let's play devil's advocate here. Yeah. Like I didn't like the Astros tweet that was taunting the Mariners on Twitter. They put the brooms, they sweep, and you said you don't have a problem with it. Is it that that's on Twitter and the rest of it's out where we all are watching it? Yeah, I mean, I think it was just like. As a, as a player, right? Like you need to show the other players some type of respect on the field, on the court. Where I think on Twitter it's a little different. Like you're just talking to the fans; it's a little different. So, like I would never necessarily show up my my opponent on the court, right? But I would talk, yeah. you know, talk trash to them like off the court. I could text them or you know tweet at them, or whatever. But on the court, like I would always try to show respect. You tell me, tweet at me at John Canzano BFT. What's fair game when it comes to baseball? What's fair game when it comes to taunting? That brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where? Down there. The big splash. Well, Mississippi State football player Sam Westmoreland, an 18-year-old Sam Westmoreland, has died, the team announced today. He would have turned 19 on Friday. The school said in a release that the university was, quote-unquote, deeply saddened by the news. The sheriff's office and the medical examiner uh, near Starkville are gathering information on his death. He's a freshman. He hailed from Tupelo, Mississippi. Uh, he was majoring in industrial technology. He was a walk-on for the Bulldog football team after having a uh, decorated career at Tupelo High School. Uh, the SEC has issued a statement, uh, you know, saying that uh, they are saddened and heartbroken. And Mike Leach issued a statement saying he will be remembered and missed by everyone who knew him and loved him. And it's never, uh, never a happy thing to see uh, anybody that young pass away. But Mississippi State has lost a football player. 18-year-old Sam Westmoreland passed away uh, today. Um, Really sad stuff as you talk about that. Uh, meanwhile, other other places in college football, a, a video appeared that appears to show Alabama wide receiver Jermaine Burton hitting a fan after Tennessee's 52-49 win on Saturday at Tennessee. Um, Alabama coach Nick Saban says he is aware of the situation. They are gathering more information. Uh, somebody posted a video on a TikTok account uh, a, a girl, a woman named Emily Isaacs, uh, posted a video saying Jermaine Burton hit me in the head while I was walking past him after their loss. Um, it, uh, Tennessee, by the way, was fined $100,000 by the SEC for uh, their second offense under the league's field access policy. And going onto the field um, uh, after a game like that, the SEC has rules. This is why they have the rules. The SEC told ESPN today, it was a great scene, but it's also a recipe for disaster when you have emotional players walking off the field and fans running by them celebrating. Now, I've been on the field a few times when I've seen fans at Reister Stadium and fans at Autzen Stadium and fans at other college football stadiums come over the railing. I was on the field at Autzen Stadium uh, one evening when Oregon beat, I think it was Stanford or USC, I can't remember which, and I was on the field, and I happened to be standing near Phil Knight when the fans came over the railing. I got to be honest with you, 
Um, I was a little worried for Phil Knight when the students were running by him. Like, I was afraid somebody was going to run into him and knock him over. Like, you know, and granted, he is 84 now. He was probably somewhere in his late 70s at the time. But I, I looked at him and I thought, this is really dicey for like a 70-something-year-old guy to kind of be walking across the field while the fans are sprinting, some of them inebriated, onto the field. So I, I do kind of see where problems could arise. But, you know, here we are in an era where, you know, a fan walking with her phone, obviously filming, is now saying that uh, Jermaine Burton smacked her in the head while she was walking past him. So typically in these matters, uh, the SEC will allow the school to investigate. And dole out punishment, they won't get involved. Uh, but uh, Alabama's looking into it and uh, checking that out. Those are uh, two big stories going on. All right, we're going to talk about USC coming up with Ryan Abraham of uh, uscfootball.com. And he is uh, the guy when it comes to coverage of USC. We'll talk to him about where Lincoln Riley's team is, how they will respond, how much of the officiating do they still blame for the loss, how upset are the Trojans, uh, where, you know, when when this season gets back on track for USC, kind of where will their head be as they move forward here in the Pac-12 Conference? All right, we got one hour in the books. The uh, happy hour coming up at 5 o'clock. Jonathan Smith will help host the happy hour. He is Oregon State's football coach. He'll be joining us at about 5.15 uh, to talk about their season, where they're headed, uh, their home game against Colorado. Uh, it's We're in the meat of the season right now. And I think we happen to be sitting really pretty here in the state of Oregon. If you're listening to this show, wherever you may be, if you're an Oregon State fan, you have to be feeling really good about Oregon State being at five wins and with an opportunity to get Colorado, Cal, Washington, Arizona State before you play Oregon in the game formerly known as the Civil War. I mean, it's not unthinkable that Oregon State could sit at eight wins or nine wins entering that game against Oregon. And and I got to say, we talked about home field advantage in the Pac-12. I think it's worth somewhere between seven and ten points. And Oregon could have one loss still going yeah. into that game. Yeah, it like that game could be nine-win Oregon State against, you know, ten-win Oregon at that point. I mean, it's conceivable that that could happen. And, you know, we haven't seen that since Mike Riley and Chip Kelly. Locked horns. Ryan Abraham, uscfootball.com is next. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, I was there in Salt Lake City. I saw Utah play a really good second half, a great second half against USC. They did what Oregon State could not do. They finished the game against USC. What happens now to USC? Can they get back to the conference championship game? They'll have to do some things in their favor, of course. But they do have on their schedule a head-to-head matchup with rival UCLA among other games. And the Pac-12 being the Pac-12, I fully expect two one-loss teams to be playing in Las Vegas on December 2nd. Ryan Abraham, 
He's the owner and operator of uscfootball.com. He's got his finger on the pulse of USC football. He is the guy. If you are interested in USC, you're reading Ryan Abraham, and he's joining us now. How are you, man? I'm doing good, John. Great to see you in uh, Salt Lake City, too. That was uh, it was brief, but uh, another fun uh, road trip for the Pac-12. Yeah, let's talk about that game first of all. Let, you know, in your mind, a lot of discussion afterwards about the officiating. Let's start there. How big of an impact does the typical USC fan feel that the officiating had on that outcome? Yeah, I think a lot of USC fans do. And, you know, I honestly, yeah, I think that was. I, I don't think there was a conspiracy or anything. I just think it was typical Pac-12 poor officiating. I think Lincoln Riley said as much. Unfortunately, the bigger calls and the, probably the most major calls went against USC. I think they got the benefit of calls the week before against Washington State. So I, I think it's just more of a general incompetence just from looking at you know, Pac-12 officiating across the board. But having an interception wiped out, they, USC really had a hard time getting stops. They got two stops that were wiped out by uh, you know really non-roughing uh, the passer calls. So they were just critical penalties against USC. But there was a million things USC could have done to win that game that was in their control. Uh, they didn't do all those things, and then something happened that was a couple of things happened out of their control, and they paid the price for it. The, you know, the Oregon State game, I left that game thinking, you know, USC's got some flaws. Somebody's going to get them. But then I, you look at the schedule and you go, no, not them, no, not them. And then, you know, you really just looked at Utah and maybe the UCLA game as the two sticking points. What's the state of the union right now? Uh, how, how is this team psyche? Do you expect that they get right back on track or are you curious? You know, I, I think you're right. This is a flawed team. And I saw them at Oregon State. And I think some USC fans and even some of the coaches come away from that Utah game feeling even a little bit better about their chances to win the Pac-12, where the last time I saw, you know, Utah play, it was a neutral site, but it really was a home game, was the you know the championship game. And, man, they just steamrolled Oregon in that one. USC gave them all they could handle, obviously. And, you know, they were, they were ahead of that game until the last minute. Um, and I, I feel like they know that there were some things that they could have done better and won that game. But to go into Salt Lake City where no one ever wins, I think it, it was a good showing for them. So I, I feel like this team is coming out of this loss with a lot of confidence. There was talk of Lincoln Riley. I think it was three different occasions when he was at Oklahoma that they lost the game in October and went on to make the college football playoff. I don't think it was a playoff team. I, mean, I guess there's an outside chance, but really the focus should be on trying to win the Pac-12 in Lincoln Riley's first year. And I, did, I know it's not like mathematically they control their own destiny, but they pretty much do unless some weird stuff happens. So they take care of business. I mean, they got three very winnable games before the, the UCLA game. I think this team is actually you know ready to bounce back from it. You can tank from a loss. You can sink. I'm not getting that feeling from going to practice this week and, and talking to the players and coaches. Yeah, I, I, I've had that feeling. And I also, you know, I bumped into Colin Cowherd in the airport in Salt Lake as I was flying out. And I sat and talked with him for about 15 minutes. And he's he's high, sky high on USC. And he said, I feel better about him. And and he went on to kind of, you know, similar to you that, you know, he said, hey, look, that's a tough place to play. Let's see how they respond. Sometimes there's a good loss that happens. Lincoln Riley, uh, on the defensive side of the ball, it just always has felt like he needs – the defense to play a little better, that offense uh, is going to score points. Defensively, can they make improvements, Ryan? I think they can. The problem is if they lose Eric Gentry, the, the you know the inside linebacker that they got from Arizona State, he's been like the MVP 
outside of maybe like a Tuli Tuli Pelotu was leading the nation in sacks. But they need this is a defense that needs to make those negative plays. They have to force turnovers. They have to get sacks. They only got one turnover against Utah, and they didn't get a sack and one tackle for a loss. It's sort of like a it's a bend but don't break. But they really kind of rely on those big plays, and I I don't think it I think it complements pretty well with the kind of offense they have. So I think they can get better. You can't let Utah go three for three on fourth downs. You can't let them, you know, score their only two-point conversion. you got to stop one or two of those. And if you do, you win the game, you know. But they didn't stop any of them. So I think there's definitely room for improvement. You can't just let a, a team like Utah go through go through you like that and not make one critical stop down the stretch when you really needed one. How, you know, it, it was evident to me after the game that, you know, my email inbox, my Twitter, blowing up with people around the conference who I think were just delighted to see USC lose because there's bad feelings about the Big Ten defection. Is that a storyline in the USC world right now? Or, you know, has it has it caused uh, USC to maybe draw a circle around itself and pull tighter? What has been the impact of sort of that outside noise and the bad feelings around the conference? You know, I haven't heard too much about that, John. It's funny, though. I think at least people like on, you know, my Twitter feed and on our message boards, I think USC fans sort of got used to not being like the the Death Star, not being the hated one, not being the supervillain. Now that they feel like they're kind of there again, it feels like you're back. You know, it feels like, <laughs> okay, if yeah. everyone hates us, if Utah storming the field, that means, you know, this was a 4-8 and eight team last year, and Utah stormed the field after winning. I mean – that's showing you something that people now, again, fear this USC football team. And I, I think the fans kind of embrace that more, where if you just, oh, you know, last year when Oregon State's blowing you out, Utah and Stanford, it's just, it's just not the same. Now the perception is that USC is back. They hired a good coach. They got good players again. Now it's like USC's real again. So I feel like that's kind of where you want to be if you're USC. You'd rather be hated than not. And I don't know if – yeah, I mean, some of it's the Big Ten stuff, but I think a lot of it's just that, oh, yeah, we remember when USC's good, they're probably a program we can't touch. So we'd rather them not be good, if that makes any sense. You were talking to Ryan Abraham. He is the editor and publisher of uscfootball.com. Really good follow on Twitter as well. The schedule, let's talk a little bit about this. You know, I was peeking ahead at US- USC's schedule, and you're right. Like, you know, if they had beaten Utah, they're looking at 10-0, and 0, and – Instead, they will now go to Arizona, host Cal, host Colorado. There aren't three easier games in the conference than those three. Uh, if USC shows up, they win those. It sets up November 19th, SC at UCLA. How do you see that game? Yeah, I mean, I think UCLA can do a lot of the stuff that Utah did. You know, I mean, I think that they can control the ball. They could use their you know, tight ends. They can run the ball. Now, Utah didn't run the ball very well, and that's something that USC did pretty good uh, on the defensive side. But I think that's it's something similar you could see where they can be physical up front and they can move the chains and keep things going. And, and DTR, being a mobile quarterback, is it going to be hard to contain like it was for Cam Rising? I, I feel like there's a lot of similarities there. And I'm curious to see what happens with UCLA this weekend when they go to, to you know, Eugene, I mean, that's obviously going to be the, the game of the week in the Pac-12. you got college game day and all that stuff going on. Um, but to see where UCLA is, they haven't really been tested away from home. They played Colorado on the road, and they didn't re- look really good. It was sort of like Chip Kelly's 
he took an NFL preseason approach to the out-of-conference games. But they're playing really well right now. And so I'm curious to see what happens then. And it could be a really good matchup. Maybe UCLA's undefeated. Maybe they have, you know, just one loss. And, I, you know, it could be for – certainly could be for a spot in the Pac-12 title game when those two teams play. But you're right. The, the three games leading up to it, I mean, on paper, they shouldn't really be that tough for USC. Uh, and then you're going into this one, you know, at a 9-1 and record. That's pretty good. Um, Notre Dame doesn't look that good either. So – to go from four and eight to you know, if they lose to UCLA, it's ten and two, you know, maybe right. nine and three. That's that's a pretty good turnaround. But it's going to be for me a really important matchup in this Pac-12 conference. The way everything is is shaping up right now. Yeah, and look, I I had predicted that it would there would be some growing pains. I thought that USC would struggle. I thought that they would lose some games. You know, and of course we didn't know Stanford would be that bad. But that Stanford game in the beginning of the year, I was pointing at that one as other people were and going, hey. That might be that might be the first loss for USC. Uh, we're talking to Ryan Abraham. Uh, he is the publisher and editor at uscfootball.com. The the Pac-12 championship game, Ryan. Right now, gun to your head, who's playing in Vegas on December second? You know, it's tough. It's like everyone's got a different path. You know, where Oregon has the two toughest games of the top four. You know, they have to play both Utah and UCLA, but they get them both at home. Uh, Utah already has a loss. USC already has a loss. And UCLA's got a tough one going, you know, to Eugene. They also have to play USC, so I guess they have to play two as well. Um, I, you know, I kind of think it's gonna could be an Oregon-USC uh, game. But I, you know, for some reason, I just think with with Utah, I, I, I don't know. I'm just not feeling it right now with the way the Utah – you know, if they're playing at home, yeah. it's one thing. But I don't see them winning in Eugene – and if and if Oregon wins this weekend, like I think they do, I think they're in. The, you know, they have the inside track to go. And um, so, so I'm kind of thinking USC and Oregon right now. But I mean, I, I think any combination of those top four you could probably see in Las Vegas. Yeah, I agree with you on Utah because I think if that game's not at Rice Eccles Stadium, I think I don't think they win it. And I think UCLA. I think Oregon's going to get UCLA. So for me, it comes down to November 19th, who wins that game, SC or UCLA, because I think that will be for. Uh, a spot in the conference championship. Caleb Williams played really well at Utah. I thought it, I, it was the best. Like he was far better than he was in Corvallis. What was going right for him against U, Utah's defense? You know, we were at practice yesterday talking to some of the offensive players, a couple offensive linemen, and really just how they handled the noise was so much better. And it looked like Caleb Williams and, and Corvallis didn't know what he was doing. When the first couple of games, they looked like it was a well-oiled machine. and They didn't handle the noise very well, and I think that they were able to handle it. And I thought, you know, even Caleb Williams, you saw him going up to individual linemen and changing the play and talking to each one, and I'm like, that's going to be a disaster, and it was working. So I feel like they grew as a team, Caleb Williams too, just kind of from that environment. Uh, actually, one of the linemen told me that Oregon State might have been a little bit louder than it was at Utah, which is crazy. Uh, until the the last drive, then it was really crazy on at, with the must and everything. But I feel like they've grown a lot from that game. That's what I wanted to see going into it. They don't have you know any really tough road games coming up. I mean, you could say you know in, in Tucson or something. But um, I feel like they did learn a lot from that experience. And the key now is learn a lot from this Utah loss and learn from that experience. You can learn from a win, which is great, but you do have to learn from this loss. But I. I've seen him be a little bit more comfortable uh, when they were playing overmatched opponents. Things just seemed to flow easy when things got a little tougher in conference. I think he struggled a little bit at times, but he's making the plays. If it's not there with his arm, he's able to take off and run. Now, he took a couple of bad sacks, but 
I can't fault the guy for taking bad sacks. He's got out of so many sacks. It's just really hard to. I think you, you know you do that so much, you think you can get out of anything, and and you can't really. But I I thought he's grown a lot, and he, you know he's still a true sophomore, you know, and and getting better as a quarterback. But he he had a monster game. You know, Cam, there's been a lot of monster games in the Pac-12 the last couple of weeks from quarterbacks, but he's certainly showing why he's one of the best in the conference. Let's talk a little bit, you know, because I think you have a unique perspective. Uh, the outsiders like myself and other people in not in L.A. Uh, are talking about the Pac-12 and disappointed with what happened with USC and UCLA defecting. But you're in the inner circle there, and you're in Southern California. You probably know better than most how alumni and typical fans feel about it. What is the sentiment in general among your readers about USC to the Big Ten? You know, initially it was more split than I thought it would be. Uh, but since then, I think people kind of have come around, at least on the, the USC side in Los Angeles. I'm hearing a lot more sort of disappointment with the with the decision on the UCLA side uh, than on the USC side. I haven't, you know, from talking to people in the program, I, I don't know if I've talked to anyone in the athletic department that was like, yeah, this is a mistake. Um, they appear to be on board, at least you're working there. And then the fans, it's definitely come around. There are some that they're just like, hey, I don't want to lose the tradition of playing Cal and Stanford and all that kind of stuff. But for the most part, people have sort of bought in. And I, I feel like a lot of it comes from they do still have aspirations of being like what they were in the John McKay years or in the Pete Carroll years and being a nationally relevant team. And I think a lot of the fans just felt like we weren't able to do that in the Pac-12, the way things are going forward, it's it's going to be tough if or if Ohio State's making three times as much money as you or or Alabama is, and how are you going to compete on the recruiting side? I think a lot of it from the USC fans is they want to get to that, at least have the potential to get to that elite level again with an Ohio State or a Alabama or a Georgia, and they just didn't feel, at least a lot of them didn't feel like they could get there uh, with the Pac-12. So I, I kind of feel like that's why maybe on the USC side there's more people that have bought in than on the UCLA side, but. That's sort of the, the sentiment, like you know, the feeling I've got uh, just being in L.A. Ryan Abraham, I appreciate you. USCfootball.com. You do a great job. Thank you for joining us. Thanks so much, John. It's always great. There he is from USC football's perspective. Uh, I think it's interesting to see how the schedule is lined up very favorably for Lincoln Riley and USC. They will get back on track. It will be a win over Arizona. It presumably will be a win over Colorado, a win over Cal, they will then get UCLA on the 19th of November. I expect that game will be a gateway game to the Pac-12 championship. I think one of the L.A. schools is going to get to Vegas. I don't think both. And I think it's probably Oregon against one of the L.A. schools. Now, on the outside, looking in, Oregon State and Utah, uh, not out of this. And if there is a logjam at the top and multiple multiple tiebreakers uh, look out because I think it could be really interesting. I started looking at tiebreakers. You can't do it yet. It's it's there's too many. There's too many tentacles to this. It's an if and if and if game and it gets too convoluted and complicated. So I think uh, what you need to do right now, if you're a Pac-12 fan is root for your team. And uh, I think you need to root for one of the LA schools potentially to have a unexpected defeat because uh, what I would like to see, hell, I'd like to see Oregon and Oregon State play in, the, play in Vegas in the conference championship game. We can get that now without divisions. But uh, in order for that to happen, you're going to have to have some chaos. And Oregon's going to have to beat Utah. Oregon's going to have to beat UCLA. 
And uh, I think, uh, meanwhile, the UCLA-USC conundrum is going to have to get fixed. Stephen, do you have a preference? If Oregon is playing in Vegas for the conference championship, you want to see a rematch with UCLA or you want to see USC? Uh, I think I would rather see USC. Uh, I think that's the matchup that, uh, you know, the top, top three teams, Utah, USC, Oregon, at the start of the year, those were the three teams we saw Utah and USC play. We're going to see Oregon and Utah play. I, I want to round it out and see Oregon, USC. One loss, USC against one loss, Oregon, could be a potential, hey, maybe they're in the playoff uh, scenario uh, in the Pac-12 championship. Anna's going to pop in the studio next. Plus, in the 5 o'clock hour, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, will be with us. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. You know how when you're in a casino, the uh, maybe you're on a run, the casino, the pit boss will come over, just kind of hover over their blackjack table or your craps table, or maybe they'll send the cooler in to uh, cool you off. Uh, the opposite of that is Anna. She uh, pops on the show every day, always changes the energy in a positive way. Uh, she came in during the break, Stephen, and she said, have you noticed today? Well, I'll just let her tell you. Go ahead. <laughs> Well, I'm not usually one to scroll like sports news, but it's become more of a thing lately because I feel like I probably should know a little something about what's going on. Yeah. And I just feel like scrolling the news today, everything was like sad or negative. It was like, okay, the Alabama player, you know, the video of him hitting the woman on the field, Jerry Jones and Robert Kraft getting into it and dropping F-bombs. Who really cares about that? Billionaires fighting. Woohoo. But and then, you know, sad story out of Mississippi State. It's just like everything is. And then like the Deshaun Watson thing just continues. It's it's like you go to sports for a distraction, for highlights, for excitement and feel good. But what you wind up reading about in the news is like DWIs and DUIs and people getting arrested and acting badly. I don't know. It's why just... is that, you think? Why do you think that the negativity right is out there? Or why is that interesting to people? Why is that being reported more than the positivity? Well, I mean, in news, like, if we're just going to be real, like, negative news tends to draw more attention than positive news. You know, people click right past the positive or like as much as people say with TV news, for example, oh, TV news is so negative, we wish that it would be more positive, but the, the actual ratings reflect that when you do positive news, they change the channel. So they stay hmm. tuned in when you talk about terrible things really? happening, you know? Really? It, really. Man, yeah. that that is, uh, I guess it's true of human nature. Like people tend to gravitate towards anxiety and negativity, Yeah. you know, but... The truth is, sports is supposed to be this safe haven. You know, it's supposed to be where we come to get away from that crap. And, and I think it is, but those aspects of it are covered way less, don't yeah, you think? Yeah. I mean, I don't know. This is your world, not mine. Yeah, I, I think it's changed in the last couple few years even more. Like, I do think we saw an era maybe five or eight years ago where it, where it pivoted towards the courts, not the basketball courts, but the courts of law. Yeah. And who who was getting arrested, who was getting fined. Yeah. But now I think it's more into what fan threw some, something at somebody at the game, who slapped somebody, who shoved a cameraman as they were leaving the field, 
who, uh, you know, uh, what's going on with Tom Brady and his split with Giselle. Right. And it it does feel like even within the sports world, there's a, uh, there's a TMZ angle to it. Oh, for sure. Or edge to it that yeah. didn't used to be there. Steven, do you find that on your updates? Yeah, I try to stay away from, like, the super negative one. Like, uh, Anna was talking about uh, the guy with the DWI, James Booknight. Like, he he was unconscious in his car with a gun on his lap. And it's like, well, I don't want to report that. Like, it's I'd rather be, you know, more fun things. Like, the Trailblazers, they're starting the season today. Or Dak Prescott's coming back from injury. Like, I yeah, it's it's tough. Like, I don't know... I don't know what the line is because you want to report everything and you want to talk about everything, but at the same time, like, I don't want to be ultra negative because there is a lot of negative out there. Well, because, and and then the question when it comes to, like, news judgment is, in the end, what is the newsworthiness of that story? It's that there's a photo. It makes him, like, look real bad. He's got the bag of Doritos and the gun in his lap, right? Like, that's Mm -hmm. newsworthy in a sense because it's very tabloidy, highly clickable, an image that, you know, is going to get people's attention. But in the end, in the big scheme of things, how newsworthy is it really? And that's what I don't quite have a peg for in the sports world. Like, I can tell you what's newsworthy in TV news and in other forms of news, but in sports, it's a little muddled for me. Because people, do people care about that, or they'd rather hear about what's happening on the court or on the field, right? Like, that's yeah. what I'm more interested in is what's happening on the court and the field, but there's so much stuff happening off of it. I think we need a better filter, though, because I think it's really easy. Is the Alabama player taking a swing at a woman on the field? Should that have been something that we have talked about on this show, for example? Right. It, and it did. It came up earlier in the show, and it came up as kind of a one-off after the big splash. I mentioned it because it sure. was a story that I saw. Yeah. But I only saw it because uh, ESPN had tweeted it out. Right. So ESPN decided that it was newsworthy. And why? But back yeah. up. Like, why is it newsworthy? It's. I will tell you. It's additionally newsworthy because there is video of it. Because that woman went on TikTok and said, "I got hit in the head by this player." There's video of it. If there's no video, it's not newsworthy. If it's if there's no video, it's not as newsworthy. It doesn't grab as many yeah. headlines. It does. It's not as clickable, so to speak. Right. Yeah. So I I think it would be a lot easier to focus on the positive stuff and not even positive. Focus on the actual games and the sports and the baseball games being played, the Padres playing the Phillies, the NBA opener, college football off the weekend into the next weekend, the NFL you know, in full swing in their season. There's plenty of content out there. So I think part of it is I think that we've got to do a better job of just discerning. And I've said this before. I said this like a couple of weeks ago on air. I said we can't just – decide that the top stories are the top stories that ESPN is suggesting to us. Right. I think it's really dangerous because if we're all going to ESPN and going, what are the top stories today? Okay, that's what matters. We're not really getting the broad picture of what's really going on in sports. Well, because think about what ESPN is trying to do, especially on their social media. They're not just trying to appeal to diehard sports fans. They're trying to raise the algorithm of each of their posts and get the massive like massive appeal and get something, you know, on their website or on their socials that is going to be highly shareable, probably not even by people that are that interested in sports because they're trying to like hook in a broader audience with something that doesn't have to do with X's and O's on a field or a court. 
We're going to talk about fan experiences inside the stadium. What is the best experience you've ever encountered? I saw a pretty good atmosphere last weekend in Salt Lake City. I'm expecting a great atmosphere this weekend, both venues, both at Research Stadium for Oregon State's game, where they are sold out, and at Autzen Stadium, where game day will be there. 503-417-7575, if you want to weigh in and share the best atmosphere you've ever experienced yourself. I want to hear about your experiences. We'll give ours as well. We'll talk about why it's important. Uh, We're back inside stadiums, live sporting events. I want to share on this front. I think it's important. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Best atmosphere you've ever encountered as a fan. Great atmospheres. I'll give you an example. Uh, 1998, 1999, I was covering Notre Dame football as a beat reporter, and I got to go see uh, Purdue play at Notre Dame. Drew Brees was the quarterback of Purdue. He was playing at Notre Dame as a freshman and in front of touchdown Jesus and the Notre Dame fans, and I can remember to this day, I can see it clear as day, walking into that stadium, looking around, seeing the helmets, the Irish helmets, and Touchdown Jesus and Drew Brees. Tremendous atmosphere. I've also uh, been to Autzen Stadium and the Rose Bowl, and I've been to Camp Randall Stadium at Wisconsin. I've been down to LSU, and I've been uh, you know, to Jerry World AT&T Stadium, and Cross, uh, seen several games at Ohio State and Michigan and other places. I mean, there's nothing like seeing uh, great atmosphere for fo- football games or sporting events in general. I want to hear about your experiences, though. 503-417-7575. What are the greatest atmosphere you've ever been in at a sporting event? You tell me. Stephen, your best atmosphere that you've ever been in. Anna, I want to hear the greatest atmosphere you've ever been in. You've been to some Olympic Games and seen some things. Anna, we'll start with you. Greatest atmosphere you've ever been in. Um, you know, I, I've really enjoyed the Timbers games. Uh, I think those are really fun. Uh, I didn't know, like the first few times I went, I think we took kids with us, and I was like, oh, okay, there's some bad words. But, um, but, it, it, but like that Timbers army and... The Tifa, is that what they call it, when they roll that thing out, and the smoke and the drums, like, uh, that's that's pretty darn electric, you know, when, when that's going on. Um, yeah, I obviously haven't been to as many stadiums as you have, but, uh, I mean, I think another one that sticks out in my mind um, was when I got to tag along with you to the London Olympics and uh, got to see the gold medal match between USA and Brazil, the women's volleyball team. That place was on fire. And, um, like, I tend to get real patriotic and, like, wearing the American flag and and that sort of thing, so it's really easy for me to to get into that. Stephen, best atmosphere you've ever seen in a sporting event? Yeah, so there's two of them uh, for me. One was the Trailblazers versus Nuggets Game 6 in 2019. Uh, Blazers tied up the series. That was just a intense game. It wasn't the it wasn't the big overtime game, but uh, Blazers tied up the series. It was a great atmosphere just to see, you know, Motor Center mm. rocking like yeah. that. Playoff atmosphere with the Blazers actually having a good team. Like, it was fun to watch. Um, and then the other one was 
Uh, back in the day, I actually uh, interned at the game when it was uh, 95-5 the game. Back in the day. Uh, 2009, Oregon, USC on Halloween. Maybe it was oh, like, yeah. for Halloween. Oh, yeah. That, I was at that game, uh, working that game, and that was a uh, another crazy atmosphere with Matt Barkley and uh, Marquise Lee in the house for USC. Oregon won that game. Lane Kevin had a beanie cap on that yeah. night. I'll yeah. never forget that one. Uh, uh, a couple of baseball games came to mind for me. I covered the 2003 World Series where the Marlins and Yankees played. I had not been to old Yankee Stadium and seen, you know, the house that Ruth built and all of that. And it was surreal to me to walk into Yankee Stadium and think about the history that had happened there. I also was at the 2013 World Series when the Boston Red Sox beat, uh, beat no, it was 2004. 2004 when the Red Sox swept the Cardinals and uh, erased the curse. It was the 100th World Series. And it was a World Series in which, like, everybody knew there was just so much history that the Red Sox were overcoming, they never even trailed in that series. It wasn't that they didn't lose a game. They were never behind in any game. It was the uh, most dominant sweep ever in a World Series. But to me, it was more about seeing history in St. Louis and Boston and the Red Sox kind of getting over like, you know, they traded Babe Ruth and they got the curse of the Bambino. (laughs) And, and finally breaking through. But I want to hear from you as a listener, wherever you may be. What is that atmosphere that came to mind when I said, hey, what's the best atmosphere you've ever been in? 503-417-7575. Let's go to Vancouver. Blake's in Vancouver. Go ahead, Blake. Yeah. Uh, as a kid growing up in the Midwest, it's hard to beat a game at Arrowhead Stadium, any game really. Uh, but I think the best one I've been in, was at Allen Fieldhouse for the final KU versus Mizzou game uh, when Mizzou was leading the Big 12. Oh, man. What made that special? Just the, the history that lives inside of Allen Fieldhouse, the history of the game that's there, the passion of the fans, and just to see the culmination of a rivalry like that, uh, it was special. Because, I mean, there, there's, you know, KU-Mizzou is Boston, Yankees-Red Sox in yeah. the Midwest. Basketball. So it was just it's special. Yeah, I love that. Uh, and you know what? Here, here's the thing about this topic. There's no wrong answer. Like those two teams you know? hate each other, don't they? They hate each <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And there's okay. no wrong answer because I wasn't there. If that was the, you know, and you tell me, like, if that was an electric atmosphere, because I've been in some buildings and I've looked around and gone, gosh, these people are having so much fun. Um, another one for me was uh, the Belmont race where Smarty Jones was running for the Triple Crown. Hmm. 130,000 people at Belmont Park. Mm-hmm. I've never seen that many people. I'd been to Michigan. I'd been to Ohio State. I hadn't seen that many people in one place. And um, when Smarty Jones got passed on the stretch by Birdstone, the building, like there was a noise in the building that I still, I don't know how to describe it. It was 130,000 people collectively thrilled to watch a 50-to-1 shot win but also simultaneously let down. Like, I'm going to work on Monday, and I'm, I don't know. I, I'm going to have to tell people I went to Belmont to see Smarty win the Triple Crown. He did win the Triple Crown. And maybe it might have just been the sound, because what people had done that day is they had gone to the ticket counter and bought a ticket. Yeah. They bought Smarty Jones to win, okay, Yeah. for $2. And it would have paid him like a buck, okay, because he had bad odds. Mm-hmm. But they weren't going to cash it in. They were going to save the ticket. 
Because it was going to be, I was at Belmont Park. I saw Smarty Jones. Here's my ticket. I was at Belmont. It was the sound of 130,000 people dropping their tickets (laughs) at the same time because now they were worthless. It was a really (laughs) surreal experience. Steve's in Salem. Steve, tell me about that atmosphere. Hey there. Um, Matt Court back in the 70s, the pit. Oh, man. So I used to go down there. My father had uh, season tickets, and he actually played at Oregon. He's 95 now. He's in memory care. In fact, I'm on my way to have dinner with him in memory care right now. I see him all the time. And it's funny, those memories of things like that and things from the 70s and 80s, he'll remember that stuff, but he can't remember what he did two minutes ago. But <clears throat> Matt Court was just electric back then, and I remember it would get so loud that the scoreboard at center court that was hanging down from the rafters, that would, it would start to bounce. It would actually slack would get in the cables and the scoreboard would be bouncing like probably, <laughs> I don't know, six inches to a foot up and down. And then the lights, <clears throat> we sat uh, kind of in the end zone or behind the basket and we were up underneath the, in the lower deck, but up underneath the second deck. And there was these old, <clears throat> excuse me, industrial lights that would start swinging back and forth. And you could literally see the floor above you, the second uh, yeah. tier, the floor above you, starting to flex. It would get so loud, so obnoxious in that stadium. And the, the, the student section was just raucous. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. And I was, you know, very, very young. And it was really impressionable to me. But And then every night, on a Thursday night, if it was a game like that, we would... Uh, we would come home, and I'd usually wake up in my dad's arms when he's putting me to bed, and I'd have to go to school at 7 a.m. the next morning. But those are such <laughs> great memories for me. And, yeah. You know, and I'll bring that up to my dad right now when I go see him here in a few minutes, and he will remember that stuff. It's just good, good memories. And yeah, I, I love that. Tell him. Called in, I yeah. appreciate what you do. Thank you for sharing that. Tell your dad, uh, you know, th- you know, that's what that's what I think. Like, when I think about my own kids, I think about memories. I want memories like that for them. Your dad did a good job, man. Right. I appreciate that. And it's, it's like going camping or these things that you remember. It's not always the big trip to Disneyland or the, you know, the giant trip to Hawaii or whatever. It's these little things like that that I just remember and that are kind of sacred. And I have them with my, my own kids, too. So good stuff. Yeah, appreciate thank it. you for that. Love that. I love that story. Uh, special. Rich. Dave's in Vancouver. Dave, tell us about that atmosphere. Hey, this is kind of like... Uh, he just talked about this is a memory with my dad. He's still alive. He's 92 years old. Okay. So Bill Walton got traded to the San Diego Clippers. I don't know what year it was. 79, 80, somewhere in there. I was probably 12 years old. And, uh, I believe he missed his first whole season. I'm not sure about that either, but it was his first return to Portland and it was in the Memorial Coliseum. We went to the game and, when, you know, they announced the starting lineup, Walton runs on the floor. It was just the coolest ovation ever. It was awesome. And they started chanting his name, and they tipped the ball off. I mean, it went so long that they had to start the game as we're chanting Walton's name. And he wins the tip, and then everyone shut up. <laughs> you remember the details. But it was, yeah. Um it was like, okay, let's root for Portland now. Um, I don't remember who won the game or anything like that, but I still have the ticket sub. Yep. Um, but it was really cool. Not important who won the game. You were there. Either way. Chris is in Portland. Let's go to Chris. Chris, go ahead. You have the floor. 
Hi, thank you for taking my call. Yeah, uh, well, I tell you, it was a kind of a tough decision between my one and only World Series and another baseball memory. But this goes back to 1978. Yankee Stadium went in to train in to go watch the Yankees play. It wasn't anything of significance except that Ron Guidry was on the mound. He struck out 18 that night. And by the time, by the time he got to his fifth strikeout, the place was just was just rocking, and I swear he got the rest of those strikeouts because all it was a packed stadium. It was summertime, yeah, and uh, it we were just along with this with this ride of energy, man. It was so cool, and every time he got two strikes on somebody, the entire place would just champ clap, and then he'd get that third strikeout. They'd go nuts, and it kept happening, and we were back in Connecticut within. With less than two hours, because he struck out eighteen. Rapid round <laughs> Gidry. I love that. Uh, you, do you remember any? Do you remember where you sat? Do you remember anything else about the game? Oh sure, yeah. Right field, uh, the upper deck. This was uh, the old Yankee Stadium before they did any renovations. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. I, I, I can just, I can just see him, and he was in a rhythm too. He was in an absolute rhythm, and it was, it was unlike anything I've ever seen. I think, it, I, I think it was. Uh, the Angels, Yankees, is that right? Oh, gosh, I don't remember who the yeah. opponent was. October, uh, no, I'm trying to think about, yeah, it was. A, it beat them 4 nothing. It was uh, a shutout at Yankee Stadium, 18 strikeouts in the game. That's yeah, the it was the Angels. Yep. There you go. Oh, Just okay, found cool. It. Hey, thank you. There it is. You know what Guidry's uh, nickname is? Gator. <laughs> That's right. And he still has the same mustache after all these years. He's still around, Ron Goodrich. 72 years old. He's pitching in the senior tur- <laughs> tour now. That mustache yeah. has come back in style. If you have, if you hold on to any kind of piece of clothing or hairstyle, it'll come back. Yeah, just wait. Just it'll wait come 20 back. years. Yeah. The bullet, <laughs> is, the bullet is back and in charge right now. <laughs> uh, let's go to Chuck, who's in Hillsboro. Chuck, what's going on? Chuck, not there. Chuck was there. Let's go to Bruce in Lake Oswego. Bruce, you get the floor. Go ahead. Yeah. Hello. How you doing? Thanks doing for well. the uh, great memory you uh, just brought up. 1974, NC State and UCLA. Bill Walton's last game, John Wooden's last game. They had won eight national championships. It was a semifinal game in Greensboro, North Carolina, yep. and one of the most exciting by far games of my life it was incredible so march march 23rd 1974 i found the box score yep i've got the ticket stub still from it from cleaning out mom and dad's house about 10 years ago and uh it was incredible just incredible my brother and i sat up in the upper stands of the greensburg coliseum and he had to bend his head down it it was so high up the worst seats there but it didn't matter. We stood up the entire game like everybody else. And we slowly migrated down towards the court. And uh, nobody, nobody sat down that entire game. It was just incredible. Do you know what's incredible interesting about that game is sometimes you'll see an overtime game where maybe one team dominates the first half and then the other team yeah. wins the second half. It was 35-35 yeah. at halftime. It was incredible. It, it, it was, was 65-65 at the end of regulation. It was 67-67 yeah. at the end of the first oh. overtime. They yeah. just played neck and neck. Tom NC Burleson State. Yeah. All, all these country boys you know, from North Carolina, they whooped up on UCLA. Well, I wouldn't call it whooped up, but they prevailed. <laughs> <you know? laughs> 
Yeah, I love that. It was wonderful. Yeah, just a wonderful experience. But thanks. I have chills since yeah. you brought it up about 10 minutes ago. I've had chills up and down my spine, you know, just to, inc- I mean, unbelievable. I love it, man. Yeah, well, hey, when people, well, you're in, you're in Lake Oswego. When people meet you and you say spine, uh, they, do, <laughs> do they ask you, do yeah, they ask I've you? Here. Yeah. I've been here 30 years, came out with Freightliner trucks, 30 years. And I, uh, I actually, I, they couldn't understand me when I first got here. So I've been working <laughs> on it. My wife's a military brat, so she's been telling me, enunciate, enunciate for about 40 years now. <laughs> I don't think you're changing if it's been this no. long. <laughs> don't exactly. Change. I don't think so either. Well, I was I don't know. when I came. Yeah. You should have heard him 30 years ago. Exactly. <laughs> I, it reminds me, hey, Bruce, I was in I was in Baton Rouge, Louisiana one time, and I, I stopped for gas. I was driving across the country, and I asked the yeah. gas station attendant for directions. Yeah. I had I still have no idea what he said to me. I know. <laughs> the the uh, first May, my wife turned 30, 29, sorry. And uh, anyway, I stopped in a uh, Hallmark card place and they had flowers and i said are those y'all's flowers out there it took me i finally had to change it i said the flowers do they belong to y'all to you <laughs> <laughs> the lady didn't understand what i was saying you know, yeah. so, I know. Again, thank you yeah thank, thank you, you for that for this. appreciate yeah. it oh, yeah bruce and lake oswego I'm, I'm telling you that gas station tenant it, <laughs> it was uh it was a dialect i had never heard before <laughs> that's awesome and i was like can I get, how do I get back to the freeway? And he went, blah, 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 and I went, okay, somebody else, anybody else help me here? Uh, Chris is in Vancouver. Uh, Chris, we're going to take you after the break. I want you to hang on. I want to come back to you. We got to take a commercial break. I'll be right back. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 750, the game. I want the best atmosphere you've ever been in as a sports fan. What have you seen? What have you felt? What it's been like? Let's go to Josh, who's in Roseburg, listening on 1490 uh, AM. Uh, Josh, welcome. Hey, John. Uh, It's fun listening to everybody's favorite events. A lot of the ones that I've heard happened before I was born. Uh, I haven't been to probably as many events as a lot of people, but I like to go to college games and a pro game when I get a chance. But the coolest sports atmosphere I've ever been in was at Roseburg High School at a wrestling meet. Um, They had been pretty dominant for a few years at the 6A level, winning state over and over. And so had Crooked County at the 5A level. And so they started doing uh, back and forth every other year. And so there was a home duel at Roseburg. Cook County came over. They were both the reigning state champions. And the final match, uh, it was tied up. And just, you know, there's one spotlight on the mat in the middle of the gym. Everybody's yelling. It was an awesome atmosphere. Yeah, I think you bring something up about, like, you know, sometimes the great event or the great atmosphere, it, it totally can be a high school football game. It can totally be a wrestling match. It can be a baseball game. Like, it like, I have seen, like, if it's a community and a town and the stakes are high and everybody's there and the shops are closed down, I mean, that's it. That's making it. Chris is in Vancouver. Chris, go ahead. John, great show. Hey, the 1992 Portland Trailblazers and the Western Conference Finals, uh, Duckworth 
was injured. Nobody knew if he was going to play. He came out for warm-ups, and the crowd just erupted. The whole Portland Memorial Coliseum was just on their feet. We went on to beat the Utah Jazz. It's a great sports moment. There it is. I've heard that. When I got here to Portland, people brought up that series. Uh, 1992, May of 92, with Kevin Duckworth, with Duck out onto the court, uh, showing a little bit of fight. Uh, Love this topic. And it's exactly what you're talking about. You were talking about the bad news in sports and all the stuff, how it dominates the storylines, and here we are. Yeah, I mean, in the end, nobody's going to really remember, you know, the DUIs and all the bad stuff. Like, this is the stuff that sticks with us. These are the core memories that make sports special. Sticky stuff. I love that. Love that. All right, we got the 5 at 5 coming up. Uh, let's let's try to keep the negativity out of the 5 at 5. Can we do that? I can. Can we go? Can we do it? We can we do, do a it. non-negative 5 at 5? <laughs> I want you to leave it here. We're going to attempt it next. BFFT. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Coming up later in this hour, Jonathan Smith will be joining us, Oregon State football coach. He's here for the happy hour. None too happy about his Dodgers being eliminated from the Major League Baseball playoffs. But I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to rub salt in the wounds of a Dodger fan, even as a Giant fan. We'll talk about Oregon State's game against Colorado. Dodgers did have 111 wins in the regular season for face planning. We'll talk about who's going to play quarterback, Chance Nolan or Ben Goldbrinson. Dodgers outspent everybody in the National League. Still didn't get there. We're not going to talk about that stuff, though. We're going to talk about football, college football with Jonathan Smith. That's coming up later this hour. First, though, we're going to do the five at five. Five important stories that you need to know about, and we've vowed to keep it positive. Can we keep it positive? Anna, can you keep it positive? Yeah, I don't know about the important part, but yeah, I can totally keep it positive. All right, let's do it. The five at five. The five at five. I'm going to start with UCLA running back Zach Charbonnet. He shares a special bond with his sister, Bella. The Los Angeles Times, Ben Bolch, who was on yesterday's show, wrote a great story about the star running back and his sister who's got challenges. It's another reminder, I think, that college football players are people playing sports, trying to make their way, but the bond, he called her... His biggest inspiration, his little sister. The bond there is impressive, and when he carries the football on Saturday against the Ducks, I won't be able to help myself. But think about, like, you know, Zach Charbonnet as a person. Anna, number two in the five at five. Go ahead. Get ready for professional slap fighting. What? It's been approved for regulation by the Nevada State Athletic Commission. Slap fighting, everybody. So this is backed by Dana White and some other folks in the oh, UFC man. world. I thought this was just a TikTok fad. No, no, no. I thought this, this is for real. Positive. This sounds like a negative sport. <laughs> uh, went, I went special needs kid bonding with brother. Yeah. And he goes fighting. You went slap fighting. I'm okay with slap fighting. I'm. This might be highly entertaining. Uh, apparently, they've approved this for regulation because they got to make sure that the athletes who engage in slap fighting. You know, right, go right. through a full battery of 
pre-fight medical testing. And uh, this is going to be a thing. They are currently in discussions with a, quote, major network. Wait a minute. You call them athletes. Are slap fighters athletes? According to the Nevada State Athletic Commission or whatever it might yeah. be called. So yeah. And it's going to take Liberal place interpretation in Vegas, of slaps of, of athlete there. The first event will likely take place at the UFC Apex. Maybe even before the end of the year. Oh, boy. Buckle could, up, everybody. If I could bet on it, they're athletes. <laughs> yeah. Do you think see? so? See? Do you think if what happens, like, if, uh, you know how in sports the bench is clear and there's a brawl? What happens in slap fighting? Do they, like, do they just go, oh, now they're fighting? They're they, real fighting? They just push. They can't slap. <laughs> Name calling? What are they doing? Yeah, just throwing insults at each other. I'm rubber, you're glue. Don't um, knock it. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, all right, number two, number three, the NCAA. The counting's the hardest part, I know. Yeah, the NCAA is progressing on discussions to move the final fours for the men's and women's basketball tournaments to separate weekends. That's right. They want to separate the two tournaments. Different cities, different dates. They're getting some stakeholder feedback, meaning they're talking to the university members or the members, and they're talking about the movement being, uh, you know, to highlight the women's final four. They, you know, they've talked about holding them in the same city on the same weekend. Uh, only 55% of the women's coaches in Division One basketball uh, supported that. So now they're talking about alternate weekends, but possibly the same city. Now, they're also talking about moving it to different cities. I don't know where you stand on this, but I've always kind of felt like the women's Final Four needs to stand on its own. It shouldn't be like this JV event that is held in the same city in the shadow of the men's event. It shouldn't. It, it It's good enough to stand on its own. Leave it on its own. Let it stand on its own. Let it shine on its own. The basketball at the Final Four level in the women's game is fantastic basketball. Like, we can have a whole debate about which tournament is better, but I, I'm going to tell you that the knock I have on women's college basketball is that the depth of teams in the women's game isn't the same as the men's game. Okay, so you talk about 68 teams or maybe expanding the field in the men's game. But I, I love when you get down to about the Elite Eight in the women's game. All of those teams are good. All of those teams are well coached. All of those teams are talented. That tournament is good enough to stand on its own. It's a great tournament. I don't want to see it in the shadow of the men's game. I don't want to see it in the same city. I don't want to see it on the same weekend. Number four, Anna, go. Yeah, that's me. Uh, okay, so here's the good thing. Washington Commanders fan Drew Shipley entered and won the team's 50-50 raffle at the Commanders' first game, week one, over the Jaguars. So he won it. He won that money on September 11th, but he didn't get the check for $15,000 until a month later. He went to deposit the check, but it bounced. This is from the Commanders. His bank account went negative, and then he owed a back check fee. They've cleared it up, but kind of embarrassing for the commanders on top of everything else they might be dealing with. Yeah, commanders. The poor commanders. <laughs> Struggling a little bit. <laughs> they can't even honor a fan's, like, prize money check. <laughs> that reminds me of the time when Zach Randolph offered to buy jerseys for the uh, for the uh, Selwood Basketball League the at Selwood Middle School in the Portland area. 
he, you know, I had written a column saying they it's a drug-free basketball league, and his agent and he saw it, and they were like, you know, they didn't have jerseys, and uh, they said we'll buy the jerseys. What they didn't know was there there was like a thousand kids who play in it. <laughs> He thought he was buying like yeah. 50 jerseys. Oh, he thought he was buying like $1,500 worth of jerseys. There's a thousand kids who play in that thing. So the total for the jerseys, I think, ended up at like, I think they were like 10 bucks a piece, 12 bucks a piece. It was like ten or $12,000. He didn't know it was going to be that much. So he, uh, first of all, he didn't write the check when he got the invoice because he was sticker shocked. And then... When he did write the check, it bounced. Oh, no. And I had, uh, yeah, I had Portland Parks and Rec reach out to me. Oh, no. And they said, hey, this is really awkward, but his check bounced. Can you ask him if he can send another check? I got in the middle of that one. I did not want to be in the middle of that one. He eventually paid it. But oh. I remember Zach Randolph pulling me aside going, hey, I thought this was like 1500 bucks." <laughs> like The original and- Scott's Tots. Situation yeah. in the office. Yeah, I don't know what's going on. Finally, the fifth thing in the five at five. Uh, apparently, the Niners, the Bills, and the Rams are all looking at a possible trade for Christian McCaffrey. Uh, Christian McCaffrey, the 26-year-old running back, in the face of that franchise over the last few seasons, has been healthy through six games this year, but. Uh, he is also the best player on the NFL's worst-ranked offense. So the Panthers are looking at possibly trading him to a uh, to a team that could return a high draft pick in the 2023 draft for. So the, tra- the trade deadline's approaching. It's November 1st. Keep an eye. The 49ers have uh, multiple picks in the 2023 draft in the top three rounds. They, uh, they are loaded up on picks, so they, they come to mind. The Bills are also a potential buyer here. Uh, the Bills uh, have two picks in the top three rounds of the next draft. And then the Rams as well. The Rams have a bunch of picks as well. They've got a uh, extra 2023 20, second-round pick and third-round pick. Uh, under that scenario, the Rams could keep their first-round pick and give up two picks for McCaffrey. Keep an eye on McCaffrey. He might be a mover on trade deadline. Have we kept it positive enough? I don't know. I really don't know. That's the five at five, though, nevertheless. Um, let's talk about slap fighting, first of all. Like, I, I imagine, like, there's some sports. I've often wondered, like, okay, maybe I was born in the wrong country. Like, maybe I would have been a legendary cricket player. Like, we don't know. Okay? Yeah. I never really swam as a kid. Uh-huh. Maybe I could have been an Olympic swimmer. Yeah. I don't know that. Yeah. There's probably somebody singing in the shower somewhere that is an amazing singer that yeah. could have been the next, you know, Adele. Uh-huh. Who doesn't know it? Untapped talent. Is it possible that one of our listeners might be the world's best slap fighter and doesn't know it? Completely. How do you find out you're good at this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Neighborhood brawls. You have to be willing to, because this is the one, correct me if I'm wrong, Stephen, Anna, <laughs> is this the one where you stand at the table, you're kind of holding onto the uh, uh a handle at the table and you have one free hand and you're slapping the opponent. This is the part where you assume that I know anything about slap fighting. <laughs> yeah. And I, I don't. I don't either. I, I assume that sounds right. You know, I don't know. Uh, so here's you, what I know. You introduced this I know, topic. I know. It doesn't mean I'm an expert on it. Um, UFC uh, person, Hunter Campbell, 
I'm not sure who that is. But Campbell says, what we have found is that this is actually a skill sport, that the participants that are at a high level in this are skilled athletes. They train, they're in good shape, and they take it seriously, not dissimilar to what you see with MMA and boxing. I just Googled it, and uh, yeah, this is intense. Yeah. It is I what know. you're saying. They just stand there with their hands behind their back, and they just take a slap to the face. <laughs> How do you find out you're great at this? Maybe our six-year-old <laughs> boxer will be a professional slap How fighter you, Yeah, someday. I'm just wondering if some guy got slapped. <laughs> said some things and got slapped and he's like you know what i took a really hard slap right there i'm pre- I, I might be good at this i should do this professionally how do i monetize this <laughs> turn this into a career <laughs> there's there's integrity of the sport at stake you know this is another quote you've seen instances where a guy might be 400 pounds and he's slapping a guy who's 130 pounds and that's not what we're looking to do. No, we're not looking to do they that. They need some regulation in the slap fighting Weight, weight classes. <laughs> weight classes, and there needs to be a commissioner. You know, here's Gator, commissioner of the slap fighting league. Uh, <laughs> let's, go, let's go to Sam in Vancouver, who's going to lend some insight here. Sam, what do you know? Oh, man, I, uh, there are so many people out there that need to get slapped like this. And I am 100% back this, behind this. And I'm telling you, man, you might be driving down the road and some guy, you know, cuts you off or guy cuts in front of you at the grocery store. Then three weeks later, you're training and everything, and you come up face-to-face with that dude, and you just slap the mm out of him. So much pleasure with that. I cannot wait to see this. And why not Dana White be the commissioner of it? Or yeah. sign me up, man. There you go. Uh, I'm not going to watch this. Maybe this would be the way that we would regulate road rage incidents and, like, you know, circumstances where somebody steals your parking lot. Like, you can just mutually agree to a slap fight. How about a little Rochambeau? A regulated slap fight, and it would be settled. Rock, paper, scissors. It's like Fight Club. You know, (laughs) our kids are, like, Rochambeauing, you know? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Instead, we want them slap fighting. That's the league we create, though, is we, you know, you you choose people you don't like, and you say, you're going to slap fight this person. Okay, who would you like to see? Two athletes, two pro athletes in a slap fight. Uh, who do you want to see slap mm. fighting? Uh, Russell Westbrook and Patrick Beverly. Mm. <laughs> I'd like okay. to see Tom Brady slap fight. Because he's kind of got the pretty boy mentality. We never really seen him get hit. Well, does yeah. he have feeling in his face from all the surgeries? Oh, <sighs> I, you know, it raises questions about whether or not, you know, just like the the fisherman who put the lead weights inside the fish, there's gonna be there's gonna be somebody who tries to game the system and slap. Oh fight. yeah, yeah. <laughs> somebody gets like a titanium jaw, or they have they have an amputee who sneaks into the tournament but has has a la- a limb that is a. Artificial limb, is that is that possible? Well, that that's what they they have to have a whole division. That's what the regulations could be for. That's what they have a whole division. They were like, hey, this is like the para slap fighting. You know what I mean? That's the next step. That's the next step. Yeah, that's yeah. great. Yeah. Except the the I mean, I could just see this. I can see the problems here. You know, is yeah. there a concussion protocol in this league? Well, does Dana White have a concussion protocol? Yeah, well, these are headshots, so that's why they do have to yeah. kind of regulate it. Because I would know. just think every single slap was a concussion. <laughs> but are you slap? You're trying to slap the face, not the head. The face is on the head. <laughs> the no, the what head, do you think? The head is above the face. 
I can, this... I can slap you in the cheek. You're not no. getting a concussion. No. That, that no. This is the same thing. Can you get a concussion by getting slapped oh. out of your cheek? No, he didn't hit me in the face. He hit me in the eye. Come on. Like, <laughs> he hit my cheekbone. I can't wait to read the full set of rules and protocols for slap fighting. You brought it up. You should have had the rules down. You yeah. should have had those in front of you. I researched this for a whole two and a half minutes before <laughs> yeah. I talked about it. Okay. On so here we go. <laughs> the preparation that goes into this show. Yeah. Yeah. I would also, okay, who else would I like to see slap fight? Do you yeah, think, who? like, I actually think LeBron would be a really good slap fighter with yeah. the reach he has yeah. and the power and the base he has. Uh -huh. Oh, come on. Does he know yeah. how to throw a slap, though? I think most NBA players are slap fighting during fights anyway. So Draymond that's, Green? We've that's kind of what him. they do. They, you know, hold me back, and then they kind of slap at each other. Like, it's not real fighting. And will there be, like, a co-ed category? You know, will there no. be, you, you know? Can't, that's can't domestic that. violence. You can't <laughs> condone that. That's you jail can't. time. Cause, no, because then you'd have a whole class of people going, we were just slap fighting. No. <laughs> no. Take them away, officer. You see, uh, you I see the neighbors fighting. No, we were just slap fighting. It's fine. Yeah, we were practicing. We're training. No, I don't think so. That doesn't work. And I'm not making light of domestic violence. Don't at me. Okay? Be a reasonable person. So here's the thing. Uh, I think slap fighting is something that I would watch on TikTok. I don't think I would ever go to see a slap fight. Because I think if you go to see a slap fight, you're joining a class of, uh, you know, society you don't want to be in. I don't think that, I don't think, I think we're. So you're not going to be with me when I'm there in no, the front row no. in Vegas? I think we're all above it. I think we're all, I don't think anybody should go to a slap fight. It's something you look at at TikTok. Speak for yourself. I'm going to no. be there. No. You it's haven't seen it. It's not as bloody as Have boxing. you seen it? I don't care. It's, it sounds I have encountered it on TikTok. Okay. It's yeah. popped up in my algorithm. Yeah. Okay? Why is that? And I scroll right by it. <laughs> I scroll right by it because I've watched it one time. Uh -huh. Everything else in my algorithm is fishing for some reason, or home runs, or big hits in football. Yeah. I don't, I don't understand it's why. Such a mystery. Why, why TikTok <laughs> thinks I'm into those things? I don't know. Anna, thank you for your contribution. Do you have changed the tone on the show? You're the opposite of the cooler. <laughs> Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach, coming up in a bit. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald face truth with John Canzano on 7:50 the game. I'm kicking myself right now, or I should say I'm slapping myself for missing the obvious joke in the last segment. Will Smith. We're talking about slap fighting. Will Smith is the commissioner. Come on. Or Chris Rock. Or should we just have those guys slap fight and settle it for once and all? We got Jonathan Smith coming up bottom of the hour here in just a few minutes. I got so many questions for Oregon State's football coach. They got a big game against Colorado this weekend because they're all big and they are in this when you talk about the Pac-12 conference. Yes, they lost to Utah. Yes, they lost to USC. Uh, they're on the outside looking in as far as the top four teams in the conference. But if there's some chaos in front of them, and that would include Oregon beating UCLA this weekend, and there is uh, a chance for uh, maybe UCLA to beat USC, Oregon State could hold its destiny in its own hands. Of course, they're trying to get as many wins as they can. But Jonathan Smith coming up. I'll ask him about Damian Martinez, the running back. Is he hesitant to hand the offense to Martinez, a freshman? 
uh, or who's going to play quarterback? Is Chance Nolan coming back, or will it be Ben Gulbrinson? Plus, Colorado confused Cal last weekend by running a defense that they hadn't really run all season. They had some players who changed positions. They ran a different scheme. What did he see on film? I know that Cal was confused by it. They looked confused, especially early in the game. Like They were like, hey, we didn't practice against this. Why are we seeing this front? Why are we seeing this defense? Uh, but we'll talk to Jonathan Smith coming up in just a few minutes. Is there? By the way, I said slap fighting, probably not a sport, and I mean that. Is there a sport, Stephen, that you look at that you go, that's not a sport? Um, no. Slap fighting would be that. Like, that's not a sport. But I consider golf a sport. I consider, like, uh, racing a sport. Um, how about how about rhythmic gymnastics, ribbon dancing? How about a trampoline in the in the Olympics? Yeah. Is that a sport? Yeah, you got to be athletic to do that. Yeah, but is that the definition of a sport? Like, there's a lot of things you have to be. I have to be athletic to jump over the couch. Well, That's sure. not a sport. I mean, it's a competition, though. So I got. Yeah, I don't know. I think we go I mean, too far. I think somebody out there needs to be like, "Hey, we have too many little like like darts. It's a skill." But should it be a sport? Well, like you can bet on it. Like is NASCAR so. a sport? I I think it is because there's competition and uh, I I I didn't believe motorsports was a sport until I got in one of the cars with, with the driver and then I went oh there's a lot of skill a lot of endurance. The problem I have with motorsports in general is that a lot of what is happening on the track is predicated by the technology and the engineering of the vehicle and the care and the maintenance of the vehicle before they get to the track. And then the driver has to go out and maximize it. But I think, like, all things being equal, like, the cars should – I always feel like the cars and the skis and the luge and, you know, the equipment that everybody's using should be the same. Yeah. And in, in motorsports, it's not. Some of it is, hey, that crew has engineered this car in a certain way. And that always confuses me because I'm like, well, what isn't the competition over? Like when they leave the garage, like did somebody just win without having to actually race? Mm-hmm. I, I mean, know. it's tough because like for sport, I I would almost say like if you can't be objective, like if you're being judged by someone, it's not a sport. But at the same time, that's like boxing and UFC. Like I would probably consider those sports. But then like you say with gymnastics, it's like it's being judged by you know, random people that are judging it. So uh, it's tough, man. I, figure skating, man. Yeah, that's figure the worst. skating. Same that's like the that. worst. It, figure skating is awesome. Like, if you've ever been to figure skating, it's awesome. Like, those are clearly athletes. But the whole judging of figure skating is a mess. That's what bothers me about figure skating. All right, Jonathan Smith is coming up, Oregon State football coach. So many questions for him. Oregon State is hosting Colorado on Saturday at Research Stadium. We'll talk to the Beavers coach next. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Now flips to the left side as Coletto keeps, runs left, and he's into the end zone. Touchdown, Oregon State. And Coletto. Lined up at quarterback, and Coletto powers his way up the middle. He's in. Touchdown, Oregon State. Oregon State will knock off Washington State. Jack Coletto, couple of rushing touchdowns, and a big night for the Oregon State defense and a 24-10 win over the Cougars. 
Oregon State's defense playing as well as anybody, maybe better than anybody in the Pac-12 conference. They'll host Colorado Saturday night, Reeser Stadium. Here to talk about it, Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. Hey, how about that defense? Yeah, did some good things last weekend, and and really throughout the year, been playing at a high level, and uh, it's it's needed, man. And I know they love playing at home. Uh, makes a difference with the crowd, and we get another chance this weekend to do the same thing at home. Yeah, Colorado's interesting. I was watching that Colorado Cal game, and it looked like Colorado on the defensive side was doing some things they hadn't done before. And I wondered how much confusion that caused with Cal as they prepared for a team that showed up playing a little bit different defense. What do you see on film with with them yeah. on the defensive side? Yeah, there is a little bit of difference this last game. What they uh, just kind of what they where they put the personnel. Uh, I do think they played with some new energy anytime a transition happens like that, and that's kind of anticipated, new life, new energy, and, and they played that way. Uh, I'll say this, too, about Colorado. You look at the, their schedule and who they've played. They've lost some really good teams. I mean, TCU, UCLA, both those guys are undefeated. Air Force at their place. Air Force is 4-2 and two and a tough place to go. And so, anyhow, this, this team with new life and new energy presents some problems. I would normally ask, you know, hey, is there a chance your guys would look past Colorado, but just what you said, and then last year you went there and they got you in overtime. Do your guys remember that? Oh, they do. You know, we, we started our week of talking about that uh, because, you know, especially on the road, but this team um, is very capable, and they beat us last year. Uh, we're not living in the rearview mirror and, and just staring at things, but we've got to learn. Learn from last year, and this is an opportunity for us to do it. You know, last year we were sitting at a 5-2 and two record. Well, we're sitting at a 5-2 and two record now, um, and so we want to do better than we did last year. Jonathan Smith is with us. Um, the On offense, you know, Damian Martinez has been good. He's had some big runs for you guys. Is, is there going to be a point where you hand him that job, or are you committed all season to kind of mixing it up back there? Well, if the trend continues, yeah, he deserves more and more carries. I mean, you look at the last two weeks and what he's been able to – to do, he's had some big runs. I think what separates him currently is that his, you know, he's had the runs for really explosive plays. Those, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 yard gains. Um, we do like the idea. We like all our backs that we play. I mean, Jam Griffin was this conversation a few weeks ago after he, the way he carried it, and so um, we like where we're going with the three guys. But if one continually separates, yeah, he's going to see see more and more carries. Gulbrunson at quarterback. He he made in, you know he made enough plays and. I don't mean any disrespect to him by that. I mean, I think it's he's got a tough job. He's stepping in there, and you guys won the game. It, is that his job yet, or is Chance coming back? Like, I still, I'm waiting for the return of Chance Nolan, too. Where are you guys at with that? Yeah, it's Ben's job because, you know, Chance is not back. I mean, he's not yet to be clear to, to you know, participate in the game yet. And so uh, you're going to see Ben again this weekend, which we're, we're great with. Like I said, this guy started two games. We've won both of them. He's doing what we're asking him to do. We got to compliment him with the run game. Uh, he didn't get pre- protected very well uh, last weekend. And again, credit Washington State—they can rush the passer. Uh, but Ben is doing some solid things, and we got to find a way to couple, score a couple touchdowns in the red zone. And I—I I think we'll feel really good about the, the points we're scoring. What's Gober- What's Goldbrunson doing now that maybe he wasn't doing a week ago? Is it—is the growth—is the growth that evident? Well, I think from the, you know his experience in the Utah game, where he played the majority of that game and had a couple of errors that really hurt us, uh, but it was a good experience for him to now 
to where he's at now uh, in regards to you know playing on the road, decisions, good defenses. Uh, I think he's gotten better each week. He's learned from the experiences he's had. We've got some confidence in him in regards to managing this offense, making some throws. If we continue, we can get better at protecting him. Um, I think he can he can throw for a high percentage. Uh, it's it's easy for me to look ahead. Maybe you look ahead. You don't want your team looking ahead, but. The way I see this, uh, you said it at the beginning of the year, you're going to be in every game, you have a chance to win every game. Looks like you guys got a chance to build on this, to go 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, maybe 10 this year. How does that feel to you as a coach to be in that position right now? Well, yeah, you want to be in a position to, to have a special year and win a bunch of games. You can only do it one game at a time uh, because, yeah, you can start looking too far ahead and, well, potentially we could do this or that. Well, what's in front of us is a game on Saturday, uh, how we continue to prepare and respect all and fear none. We talk about that in regards to this opponent. This is what we get to do. We get to play back at home. I know guys are going to be excited about it. we got the bye staring at us right after this, and so I want us locked in. To, to find a way to play really well on Saturday. It's, uh, it, it's different now, a couple of few years after you took over. you got better players. You, you're getting better results. You guys are playing better. Um, you got the home field this week. It, you know, Teams at home in the Pac-12, by the way, home favorites this year in the Pac-12 are 30-1. and 31 times Pac-12 teams have been home favorites. They're 30-1. and one. You'll be a favorite this weekend. What is it about the home field in the Pac-12? Yeah, you know, there's some tough places to play. Um, you know, the crowd making a, a being a factor in a lot of a lot of places in the league. I think the comfort level and confidence that comes from a home team playing in their place, where they spend a lot of time practicing, preparing, uh, they're used to it. Um, you know, and again, traveling, late games, you know, all of that combined adds to more and more home field advantage. All right, I'm not rubbing salt in the wound here, but your Dodgers are out, my Giants are out. We can have a grown-up conversation about this uh <laughs> yep uh, how uh how painful was that to watch that i was surprised well i wish i would have been able to watch it i mean honestly so they yeah. the first pitch was right during our game i'm not gonna lie and you know i'm doing my job but at halftime i did check the score see where it's at <laughs> it was a, you know it was the bottom of the second inning so i was feeling like i was going to see some of it second inning we were up to nothing and then, yeah, we, we won the game. I got to do some media. I went into this press conference. We were up 3 nothing. Mm. Come out of the press conference, the game's tied at 3, and then we go down 5-3. Uh, and then, obviously, we didn't do anything else after that. So it was kind of a bittersweet night for me. The Dodgers need to spend more money. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's not Something enough. Something like that. Yeah, it would be interesting to see who we bring back and what we got going. And I do love baseball. That's almost my disappointment. Not as much as just losing the series. It's like yeah. it's over. You're not gonna be able to watch anymore, you know, and uh, yeah. it's how it goes. Will you will you pick up a team now, like will you work for the Padres, or you will you watch it even, or are you done with it? I'm pretty much done. You know, I'm not picking up anybody, and you know, if it's on, I watch it, but I won't be setting my schedule around any baseball. Baseball's interesting because you know it's a game where it's who's playing well, right? And and, it, and how much of that, like when you look at football, is translatable to like, hey, you have to show up and play, or you get beat. Yeah, there's no question. I think it's very similar on who's playing well, and that's why I'm back to Colorado with new life and 1-0 and under this new regime and new energy. Um, and so it comes down to whatever's taking my place, it took this 60 minutes on that particular Saturday. And you can see some momentum, especially the last week or two in teams or vice versa. Um, but it ultimately comes down when you tee it up and you got 60 minutes to go play. 
Jack Coletto, I don't think he's getting the due that he deserves as a football player, and I have a feeling he's going to end up in the NFL somewhere playing for somebody in some undefined role that you know somebody smart sees the the talent in him. What what makes Coletto go in your mind? Like what what makes him good as a football player? Yeah, it's a whole lot. One starts with how smart he is because he's able to digest really all three phases, offense, defense, and special teams. He's physically gifted now. This guy's up to 240 pounds. He can catch the ball. He's nifty at fullback. He's nifty at linebacker. Um, and, you know, the guy has some mental toughness, not just playing the game, but that's a lot of wear and tear on the body, the mental toughness of what he's done in his diet and how he rehabs and takes care of that. He's getting a bunch of attention through the NFL scouts, I'll tell you that. Every scout that's come through here, and we've had every team represented asking about him, can see a fit for their organization, whether it's, like I say, offense, defense, or special teams. Yeah, I, I, uh, this conference is a lot of fun right now, and it feels like it's wide open, and you guys are in this. Uh, you're certainly uh, you got to you know you just control your destiny and that's where you want to be. But uh, you're also you 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 need your fans this weekend as you as you have other weekends. What do you tell your home fans? Uh, what what should be a maybe a wet Saturday night in Corvallis? Yeah, it's you know it's good for the weather to change, man. That's to our advantage. And and again, the crowd we're counting on them, and and they've been awesome all year, uh, starting with our students. And so they, they know they make a difference. And, yeah, we get a little light rain. That's that's the style we want to play in, and especially in this last month in November and, and the climate and whatnot. So we're counting on them, and I anticipate they'll be there and, and fired up to go. All right. It, it should be a lot of fun for you guys. I appreciate you coming on the show. And, you know, uh, I, I, was, I was being serious. I'm not trying to rub it in about the Dodgers. I, I debated yeah. even bringing it up, but I think it humanizes you a little bit. You know, we can all relate to that. Yeah, yeah, I anticipated it, man. You know, I took a little trash about the Dodgers. I'm a huge fan and went my down. Gi- and, yeah. yeah. But my Giants were, like, only about 30 games behind your team. So, yeah, you know. Yeah, DVD's talking about his first year, first time in their history. is like 81 and 81. Perfect exactly eight. 500. Exactly. Yeah. That's hard to do, man. It's really yeah. hard to do in baseball. So, hey, I appreciate you coming on. Good luck to you. Uh, go get Colorado, and, and we'll catch you next week. Okay. Thanks, John. All right, there's Jonathan Smith, Oregon State coach. Really interesting. Okay, first of all, he's going with he's going with Goldbrunson again at quarterback. Looks like Chance Nolan, you know, my hunch is it's a concussion, and he's waiting to get cleared. I think Chance Nolan's going to come back at some point for Oregon State. I, I, I want Chance Nolan to come back. I don't think that we all want that kid's last memory to be what happened to him in his last two games, six interceptions in two games, got knocked down and knocked out of the game against Utah. Like, I just think he's a better player than that. I would like to see Chance Nolan back on the field. That said, uh, I think Oregon State's identity right now is clear. It's defense, and it's running the football. And at some point, I would like to see Jonathan Smith pick a running back because I want to see what one of these guys could do with 20 carries. But we're not getting that right now. We're getting a little Damian Martinez. We're getting, you know, a little bit Jam Griffin. Uh, You know, we're getting Coletto in short yardage and – and that's fine, but the identity of this team is not its not the quarterback, okay? And it's a quarterback-centric game. So I have wondered for a while, like, is there a ceiling on Oregon State because they don't have a great quarterback? And I, I think I came to grips with it last weekend because I, I, I told you, I, I watched USC and, and Utah play. Two great quarterbacks, Caleb Williams, Cam Rising, great quarterbacks. Game comes down to the wire. 
Utah wins. Fans storm the field. I leave the stadium. I get back to the hotel room in Salt Lake City, and I start thinking about the Beavers, and I had watched the Beavers game, kind of side-eyed it during the Utah-USC game. I had it on my laptop. I was kind of watching it while the other game was going on. But I wanted to take a closer look, so I went back and watched the replay. And what I came away with was it's really easy for anybody who sees Oregon State play to start pointing out the faults at Oregon State. It's very easy to start going, they don't get great quarterback play. They need a QB. I'm guilty of it. I've said that at different points this season. It's very easy to go, hey, they don't have a receiver who's 6'4 and can take the top off the defense. They don't have that player. Okay, it's very easy to do that. It's very easy to start nitpicking them and, and pointing out their deficiencies. But what you need to see, you need to do more than look. You need to see. What you need to see is this is a defense that sacked Cam Ward six times, hurried him seven other times, broke up ten passes. Defense playing at a very high level. It is an opportunistic defense that shut down USC, held them to 17 points, shut down, you know, last week, uh, you know, in winning the game at Washington State, Cam Ward in Washington State's offense, held them to 10 points, and is a really tough matchup for any offense in this conference. So you look at the defense, and then you look at the run game, and Jonathan Smith and Brian Lindgren's creativity on offense, and you go, look, if they can score at all they're in all of these games if they can you know and they will score on Colorado like Colorado struggles to score points they have his this season you know 17 to 20 points has been kind of their ceiling I kind of wonder if Oregon State has a shot to either shut them out or just give them a seven or a ten like it feels like if Oregon State plays its a game Colorado might you know is going to have a long night on the offensive side of the ball so it really then turns the focus to can Ben Goldbrinson make enough plays and will they hand the ball to Damian Martinez and Jam Griffin and others and go, hey, we're going to run the football, we're going to have an identity here, and we're going to be, you know, it, and, and like I said, it's easy to look at Oregon State and point out flaws. The hard part is seeing Oregon State because when you start to see them, there's a difference between looking at something and seeing something. Uh, and when you start to you know, really see a team, you understand why they win. Like, you know, I look at Oregon, I understand that they are explosive on offense, they've got Bo Nix who's experienced, and they have a, the, the most balanced team in the conference. I understand, I see why they win. I look at UCLA, I see Dorian Thompson-Robinson at quarterback, I see what Chip Kelly's doing on offense, I see the transfer portal and all the players he's added, the pass rushers on, and linebackers on defense, and I, it's easy to understand why UCLA is winning games. Oregon State, their defense is lights out. Best defense in the conference right now. Damian Martinez at running back, he's exciting. He's a young player. They're going to have to hold on to him. If Gulbrinson manages the game well, Oregon State wins easily against Colorado. They beat Cal. Maybe they go to Washington and win on a Friday night. Maybe they beat Arizona State on the road. Maybe they arrive at that Civil War football game sitting on nine wins, eight, nine wins, right in there, right in the mix for either a nice bowl game, big step forward, and uh, possibly in the mix outside in to try to get to Vegas if there's some chaos in front of them. And that's all they need. They don't need a bunch of chaos. They just need a little bit of Oregon over UCLA, USC over UCLA, somebody to knock off USC, 
uh, Oregon, uh, Utah beats Oregon. All of a sudden, we got like a four-way tie at the top of the Pac-12, and look out. That's where Oregon State knocks on the door. So uh, I just like the fact that they're relevant right now. They were not relevant if you just look back in recent history. Good stuff from Jonathan Smith, Oregon State football coach. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, we're uh, closing in on Blazers opening night, Stephen. Uh, are the juices flowing? The juices are flowing, John. They're flowing big time. <laughs> oh, that's sarcastic. You, okay, glad you yeah. can tell. Yes. Uh, what do we have coming up uh, top of the hour here got, on 750 The Game? On 750 The Game, we got some uh, talk timbers. Hmm. So Judah, Judah Newby will be hosting that. It'll be, I love uh, that. Yeah. Be love talking that. timbers. He'll be talking timbers. Uh, will you be watching the Blazer game? Later I, tonight, I will be. Yeah, you know, I'll uh, I'll definitely have it on. Uh, I'll be trying to watch on my phone as I watch the kids. And then when the kids go to bed, you know, I'll start paying attention. Okay, I like that. Um, uh, this weekend, uh, uh, you know, we haven't talked a lot about the NFL games, but it appears as though Dak Prescott has been cleared to play by the Cowboys. Um, how important? Like, it's interesting because Robert Kraft and Jerry Jones are arguing at a uh, at an owners meeting, but. How important is it for the Dallas Cowboys to be relevant for the NFL to be the NFL? Like we, we always talk about in baseball, like baseball needs its brands. Does the NFL need the Dallas Cowboys? Hmm. Yeah. Um. I don't think that they. I don't. Hmm. Is yeah, it better? I, no. I mean, is it better if they're relevant? Yes, it's better yeah. if they're relevant. I think if they were really bad, it would affect it a little bit because they're always on in that you know one fifteen, one twenty five window uh, here on the West Coast. And so if they're always putting those games on and they're not good at all, like that would affect, I think, the product a little bit. So yeah, I think they, I think the NFL, they don't need them to be great, but it definitely helps them when they're great. The fact that Cooper Rush, who was starting in place of Prescott, played pretty well. The Cowboys are 4-2. and two. Um, You know, it's, it, does that, like there's no quarterback controversy with Prescott coming back, obviously, because of the money and the fact that the guys played at a high level, but... Does, what does that do to the Dallas Cowboys? The fact that you know they're in this position, I think it. I think it changes their their mindset of how they're going to go about the season. You know, last season they uh, led the NFL, I believe, in either points or yardage offensively. Where now the way to win with Dallas is just rely on that defense and that front seven. Micah Parsons is the best defensive player in the NFL. I think if they just so Dak doesn't make mistakes and then. He's going to be have the arm talent that Cooper Rush doesn't have. He will make a throw downfield when they need to, but rely on that defense in the run game with Tony Pollard and Ezekiel Elliott. Like, I think the Cowboys have a better recipe to win now that Dak went out because they realize they can win and they don't have to score you know thirty points. They can rely on that defense and go from there. I think like the same logic you know in the in the Pac-12 conference. As much as none of us want to say this, uh, the fact that the USC is back. Uh, it means something to the conference. It validated Utah over the weekend as Utah had the big win. It'll validate whoever plays them later in the year. And it's possible that they get to the Pac-12 championship game, and maybe it's Oregon or somebody else who gets there. And it's possible that because it's USC, it's going to feel bigger. The Dallas Cowboys, the Yankees, the, you know, in some respect, the Patriots, uh, you know, once upon a time, 
the Spurs when they were good. I think they they bring something to that you know, that equation. And I wonder, you know, part of what I think is wrong in the NBA with sort of the transient nature of the game is we're not getting to see groups of players, except for the Warriors now, in one place for a sustained period of time. Like, I can just remember, we all knew the Pistons with Isaiah Thomas. We knew the Bulls with Michael Jordan. We knew, you know, there were some teams you had to get by. It was, the, it was Clyde Drexler and the Blazers. It was, there were some teams. It was the Knicks with Ewing and Starks. Like, there were some teams that you just knew were going to be good every year. I, I kind of wonder right now, with the way the NBA is, outside of the Warriors and the way the NFL is, with, with all the parity, if we've kind of lost those benchmark franchises in some respect. And I think the Cowboys having Dak Prescott healthy, it matters to the brand of the league. But am I out in left field just flailing around on that topic, or is there some logic in that? And I don't know if there's any going back to the era where players stuck with teams, but it feels to me like, Success is so fleeting right now because of that. Yeah, no, it's never going to go back just because of how much money is involved. But, you know, I think there are certain players where you think about them and you think about a certain place. Like, you know, you go to the NFL. Like, I was a big Emmett Smith fan growing up. Like, he played for the Cardinals, but everyone thinks of Emmett Smith on the Cowboys, where I think, like, even if Damian Lillard were to leave Portland, he would still be remembered as, you know, the all-time Blazer great that he is. Um but yeah, it's never going to be the same because there's the money involved, and I think the criticism and the 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 thirst for having to win championships, like that's all that matters in sports nowadays with a lot of fans. Like that kind of stuff is going to make it so people are always going to leave to try to chase that championship and get that championship. Yeah, I'm interested in that, and I would like to have some of that in Portland if the Blazers could ever get to a position where you know we just knew year in and year out like the Warriors do that they're going to be really good. But I uh, look, I. I wrote today at johnconzano.com that this is a franchise that needs to be sold. This is a franchise that needs to seriously consider pretty early on in the season whether or not they really have a chance to win. And if not, I think, you know, the Tankathon or the Victor Wembanyama Yama uh era of uh NBA tanking, the Blazers would would be well advised to join that. I get it. He's a big guy. He's 7 foot 5 and all that and big guys in Portland don't tend to do well, but there is also um, a consolation prize sitting at the number two pick in the draft that that isn't shabby. Uh, I, I'm hopeful for the season, but I also feel like we've been here before. And if the byproduct of this season ends up being Jody Allen coming to grips with the idea that she needs to sell the team, that's a win too. All right, Judah Newby and Talk Timbers is coming up. I want you to leave it right here on 750 The Game for that. Grab a podcast of The Bald Face Truth wherever you get a podcast. Tomorrow on the show, Dan Lanning, Oregon football coach, he'll join us. Want you here for it? You got the bald face truth.